Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Um, all right, Kenna, should we start with housekeeping as usual? Yes. First of all, thank you so much for listening. Um, and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Yes. Um, if you'd like to support us on Patreon for $3 a month, you get two bonus episodes, you get bonus content, like budgeting tips, grocery food budgeting tips, uh... You can ask us questions. That's where you can send us episode ideas. So, yeah, at uh, patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. Yes, my only housekeeping thing to add as usual is that book pre-orders are still going on. And I'll include a link in the um, description of the episode where you can click if you want to pre-order my book called I Survived Capitalism and All I Got Was This Lousy T-Shirt. It's coming out in January and you can pre-order either... The actual physical book or the audiobook, which I will be reading. Cool. Yes. Even um, though I am bummed that it won't be me. Yes. Impersonating you. No, I know. Being like, hi, I'm Madeline. <laughs> well, I think the book publishers decided ultimately that people connect with my voice, even though it's shrill and grating and they associate it with me. <laughs> I don't think it's shrill and grating. So, thank you all for tolerating my shrill and grating voice. Um, it's really exciting. Uh, with that out of the way, we can just get started with this here epi. Yeah. Well, epi. Um, and as always, the episode is going to start with a question I have for Kenna. Go for it. Okay, Kenna, when was the last time you went to a library? Um, oh, I actually went to, I mean, I get books uh, off the library website, but the last time I went into a physical library... Uh, was when I was visiting my parents in Colorado because my mom oh, goes recently. to the library all the time. Uh, not this last time, but the time before. Okay. So maybe like six months. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I have not gone to a library in person since college. Yeah, that's. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the library at college, and that was a school library, not the public. I did both, I think, but mostly, mostly the school library. Uh, my boyfriend, though, Chris, went to the library last month uh, because he rented a power washer to power wash the outside of our oh, house. Oh, that's cool. Because, you know, Kenna, you, you're my next door neighbor. Our neighborhood is full of spiders. Yes, black widows. Yes, and um, when my beloved elderly dachshund Modog of 16 years died, uh, we couldn't figure out what exactly did it. I know she was old, but she was just so strong and hardy. Um, and Chris and I suspected there could be a chance she got bit by a spider. But we had no way to to prove it. And Chris, out of vengeance for Modog, uh, which she probably did not die because of Spider. She probably died because 16 years old. But still, out of anger and hostility in the grieving process and vengeance for Modog, he was like, I will kill every spider outside of our house. Wow. And he rented a power washer from the library to enact his revenge on behalf of Modog. Wow. And our house is pretty clean. But I just thought it was cool that you could rent, like, power tools and power washers and all sorts of stuff in the library. Yeah, that is cool. I know. It's like a bittersweet story, right? Yeah. R.I.P. Modog. Gone but not forgotten. Yeah. I love you every day. Yeah, there are a lot of spiders. And I'm pretty sure I got bit by a spider. Yeah. You... I got a nasty spider bite. Yes. You said it felt like shingles. It was so bad. Yeah, it hurt. Yeah, we really do have a spider neighborhood. There's they love lot. it here. There's I don't know why they love it so much here. Because there's black widows and then there's brown widows. We got them all. And uh, I don't think brown recluses live here. 
Yeah, I don't know about that. I just know that there's spiders everywhere. There's a ton of spiders. There's a ton of spiders everywhere. I'll go into my shower. There'll just be spiders hanging out in there. And I'm like, I don't even know when or how you got in here. Yeah, my it. boyfriend killed a black widow in our bedroom last night. Yeah. So it's a spider neighborhood. Um, But yeah, this episode is not about spiders. <laughs> it is uh, actually a topic recommended by our Patreon subscriber, Kat. It is all about libraries. Oh. Yeah. Um, so the library thing is pretty interesting to me because I'm going to say right out of the bat, out of the gate, off the bat, out of the gate, going into this episode, I had a strong pro-library bias. I was very into libraries when I started this episode. And now you're like, fuck them. No. Mm, I have a more complicated relationship with libraries now that I've learned a little bit more about the library system in the United States. I'm going to say there's potential there for something really good. But like most things in the United States, it's got a it's got a long legacy mired in racism and bigotry oh, and wow. capitalism. Wow. I know. It's, I didn't I, expect it's, it. It's always the Scooby-Doo under the mask thing. I know. I really didn't expect it with libraries. I You're thought like, this would be... You're like, not this one. This won't be nice. I thought it would be pure. It's like the time I tried to do an episode about aliens, but it turns out UFO sightings and aliens all come back to the CIA somehow. Oh, my God. It's kind of like that. And, um, you know, like... Uh, you know, I feel like all those, like, conspiracy theories lead down to a rabbit hole of basically just, uh, also bigotry. Anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, like, yes. The truth always leads down a rabbit hole of white supremacy. Uh, oh, it's like, it's wild. Um, I will say, uh, did you know that I used to work at a library? I worked at a library for, like, two years. I think I do remember this, but you would have to get your master's in library science to be a librarian, and the pay is not super great, right? I was the student archivist assistant, but Fancy. basically, I was an archivist. Like, I chose, like, how to organize a bunch of different collections. Not the initial ones, but, like, oh, I won't even go into it, but basically, like, they were like, you should go to library school, you should become an archivist, and I was like hell no like I was working with all of these people who had mass master's degree and were making ten dollars an hour yeah. and no shade to people you know doing that but I was just like I don't enjoy this job enough to okay. have it only pay ten dollars an hour I have a question for you that's maybe going to be a little um foreshadowing for the rest of the episode how many of your co-workers were middle-class white ladies like every one of them. Every one of them. Except yeah. for the head archivist was a guy. Okay. He All was right. like a hippie guy. Okay. Pretty sure you like the dead. Deadhead. We got a deadhead <laughs> archivist and then a bunch of middle class white ladies. Um, two of whom used to be lawyers and then their second careers were as librarians. Right. Okay. So this is, that's a little foreshadowing for what we're going to get into here. And you know, as somebody who is, you, you know, low was a lower class non-binary person, but pretty much for all intents and purposes moved through the world as a woman and now is middle class. I feel like I'm adjacent enough to middle class white lady that I can claim this as my own community now. And I can say that my research into libraries made me ashamed of us, the middle class white women. It really did. It's uh, it's the well-intentioned uh, left-leaning white woman thing is what we run into a lot with the libraries. Oh my God. It's like that thing... Uh... Uh, the podcast about the schools and the white parents. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, it's the, are, are you thinking about the one where like the, 
the white parents send their kids to a school in like a gentrifying neighborhood and then the white parents take over the whole school system trying to make it a good experience yeah, I believe, for the white kids. I think that we listened to this one time when we were working together. We must have, yeah. And yeah, I was just like, ugh. Like, I was just like, oh, this the is, whole, it was very cringe. This is a real, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Story, yeah. I uh, yeah, I always think about that. I'm like, what am I doing that I like, or what? Like, I think about things that I've done in the past, and I'm like, I have good intentions. And I was like, that was not a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, a lot of these things are systemic or whatever. White supremacy is systemic, but it is important to recognize the role we play in white supremacy and the privileges we have, obviously, and uh, the positions of some form of relative power we get as a result of it. And I think uh, by the time I get to the end of this episode, it'll all make sense why I'm like, we, as a white lady community, need to take some accountability. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... We're not going to start off there, though. <laughs> We're going to start off with early history of the library. Uh, so, Kenna, when do you think the first library existed, if you had to guess? Um, I feel like it always starts out, what do they call it, like the cradle of civilization? Like, not Egypt, but kind of like Babylon, Babylonia, like uh, Persia. Yeah, you're really on Sumeria. the The Babylon thing, really really hit it um, because yeah libraries started out just as like record rooms or archives right and they have existed therefore as long as records have been kept so really libraries are kind of as old as like human civilization and we have some really early examples around 3000 bc a temple in the babylonian town of nippur was found to have a bunch of rooms filled with clay tablets which means this must have been a well-stocked archive or a library yeah. Of records. How, wait, where is Babylon nowadays? Is it like Iraq? Um, I think it, I, I can look this up actually. We can fact check ourselves live on the air. Modern day Babylon. Because is, I feel like. People, oh my God. No, apparently this is a band. Oh no. Oh no. It's a musical <laughs> band called no. Modern Day Babylon. <laughs> okay. It's in the lower Euphrates River. Uh, and the present day location is around Iraq. Ah, yeah. I win this uh, week's trivia. Yes. And yes. I win... Um, You're pretty good with geography, honestly. I don't... Honestly? Okay, this is an annoying thing. Uh, maybe I don't think it's annoying, but I think sometimes other people think it's annoying where I... <laughs> or my exes think it's annoying. I really want to know the size of cities and the sizes of countries. No, I love this. But I love this is the why... population of cities. And I, I think this is why you and I are, like, can be friends. Because yeah. I'm like, I want to know. Like, I'm just like, where is this place? Like, I want... It's so funny because I'm like, oh, I'm bad at geography. But then you get asked, is Chicago a state? Oh. And then you want to... You want to... Uh, you want to know why. Yes, and you want to curse uh, the U.S. education system. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. No, I tend to reference the sizes and populations of places in terms of how many Fresnos it is. So, for example, Miami, I'm like, smaller than Fresno. Not a Fresno, Miami City. Oh Not the Miami, uh, you know, larger metro area. Just the city. Smaller than Fresno. I started doing this with my boyfriend because he's also from the Central Valley. Yes, Sacramento. So how many Sacramentos? No, I say Fresno now. Oh, okay, okay. Because of you, because he knows, because Fresno is pretty close to Sacramento. It is, it is. I am spreading the gospel of Fresno uh, far and wide. 
So yes, uh, around 3000 BC, we got the temple in the Babylonian town and it's got the well-stocked clay tablet archive. It's a library. And then around 2000 BC, we have a collection of Assyrian clay tablets that, you know, was probably housed. It was found at Tel El Armana, uh, Amarna, sorry, in Egypt. Then around, I don't know, 668 to 627 BC, uh, we've got Ashurbanipal, the king of Assyria, who maintained an archive of around 25,000 tablets, which were transcripts and texts that were systematically collected uh, from the temples throughout his kingdom. So basically, these libraries were collections of history, right? And often they were used politically. So sometimes when you would like conquer or take over a region, you would want to destroy the previous records and be like, nah, history begins with us. So some of these great libraries that are thought to have existed throughout all of human civilization are just lost to time because they were lost to war and conquering. I think about the Library of Alexandria. Yes, famously, famously destroyed. I know this because of a Doctor Who episode. Oh, yeah, I love Doctor Who. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that how these kind of libraries and archives developed beyond this kind of early record keeping differs from place to place, obviously. And we've got some uh, different stories about early human history and how libraries came to be. So the first place we're going to talk about is China. So in ancient China, Emperor Shi Huangti, who's a member of the Qin Dynasty and the ruler of the first unified Chinese empire, he was one of those people that was like, any historical records that not Qin Dynasty, get rid of them because history is going to uh, start with us. It's all going to begin with the Qin Dynasty. But, you know, this practice wasn't great, right? So it stopped under the Han Dynasty in China around 206 BC, pretty early on. They were doing great. And they started to actually recover some of these works from antiquity and record keeping started to become more encouraged and even classification systems were made to kind of keep track of all of these records. So that was kind of like how libraries would operate today. So they had a seven part classification system that was pretty popular that would have like Confucian classics, philosophy, rhymed work of prose and poetry, military prose, uh, scientific and occult writings lumped together. I kind of thought that was interesting based on our astrology episode, how like yeah. astronomy and astrology kind of coexisted for a long time. Summaries and then medicine. And then later this was refined into just a four category system, which would be the classics, history, philosophy, and pretty much everything else. So the Han Dynasty also created a civil service system as early as the second century, which lasted all the way into the 20th century. And this was really important because it facilitated the growth of these libraries. And entering the civil service meant you had to memorize a bunch of classics and pass all these tests about them. So that meant that preserving these texts became super, super important. Mm. So China really had a pretty good and highly developed library system early on. So the second place we're going to look at is Greece and Alexandria, which you referenced. And most of the earliest Greek temples that were big enough had libraries in them. And this makes sense, right? Because everyone was super into philosophy and playwriting in that region. It was important culturally. And Euripides, who's a famous playwright, was known as a private collector of early books. So the first important kind of institutional libraries in Athens came about during the 4th century BC. And this kind of coexisted with the great schools of philosophy coming about, right? And obviously it makes sense that philosophers would need libraries because so much of philosophy is like referential. Like everything is a critique of somebody 
something somebody else said, which is a critique of something somebody else said, which is a critique of something somebody else said. And uh, my friend David, who has been on our podcast before, likes to say that philosophy is a conversation. Mm. So in order to have that conversation or participate in it, yeah, you need records of what all these people were saying. You need to know what happened. You need to know what happened and what people were thinking and how the story, the conversation kind of developed from there. So we got a lot of libraries to house all of these books and all these writings so that people could reference them. And at the time, though, texts were written on perishable materials. Like, they were written on papyrus or parchment, which degrade over time. They fall apart. So they had to be periodically copied in order to be maintained. So this was, like, a really arduous process. It was part of libraries and record keeping. The parchment would start to fall apart, and you'd be like, oh, no, it's going. I got to copy it all. That would be my dream job. Well, everybody on our Patreon was talking about how good your handwriting was. I love, like, handwriting. I love calligraphy. I think I'm going to get into calligraphy and get some nice pens i think that's really smart but that would just be my dream job is just like copying stuff in nice handwriting all day and i could take my time because honestly even that hand that handwriting i posted not my best not my best work i've seen your handwriting be beautiful in many different ways but yes that was kenna posted on her patreon a handwritten list of her dating tips and everyone was like how is this a font? Why is Kenna's handwriting so good? And I'm like, I've talked about it before. I've been telling you all Kenna has great handwriting. So I'm glad that, you know, I felt validated, actually, more than you probably <laughs> felt validated. It's actually more about me feeling validated for telling the people how good your handwriting was. Uh, yeah, so we've got this kind of happening in Greece, Alexandria. We're copying all of these, uh, you know, written materials from papyrus and parchment onto other papyrus and parchment. We're documenting as much as we can. And with the exception of the Stoics, right, who are disciples of the philosopher Zeno of Celium, who was born in Cyprus around the 4th century BC, they didn't believe in owning property, so they kept no libraries. But aside from them, most of Greek history does revolve around keeping records and, yes, having some form of library. So the schools of Plato and the Epicureans, for example, they famously had libraries. And Aristotle's peripatetic school had a famous collection that was systematically organized by him And this was done with the goal of facilitating scientific research, actually. Uh, So in 86 BC, though, Athens was sacked, right? And somebody just, like, stole a bunch of Aristotle's texts from this library, as many as they could take. And it was like war booty. It was like, (laughs) you know, I stole all this stuff from Athens. It's Aristotle's library. But those surviving texts that were taken from that war booty were used to recreate Aristotle's famous library by Adronicus of Rhodes and Tyrrhenian in Rome around 60 BC, so around 26 years later. And this copy of Aristotle's library actually formed the basis for Kenna, the famous main library established in Alexandria, which became the greatest known library in antiquity Yes, in the Western world. So this library in Alexandria was planned by Ptolemy I in the 3rd century BC, and it kind of came into fruition uh, because of his son, Ptolemy II, who worked in collaboration with Demetrius of Phaleron, who was their advisor. And the founders of this library aimed to collect the whole body of Greek literature in the best available copies they could find and arrange them in systematic order to form the basis of published commentaries. And this was, we're talking like hundreds of thousands of papyrus and vellum scrolls. Remember, because that's still what they're writing on at this time. It's not like traditional books as we think of them. And this was located in a temple of the muses called Moseon. Moseon? Mm. Yeah. So it was staffed, though, mostly by famous Greek writers and scholars who were working at this thing. 
Yeah, imagine going to a bookstore where all of the people shelving the books are, like, famous writers. Yeah, it would be like that, literally. We had... Like, gr- Stephen King is handing you, um, <laughs> your, your copy like, of... here's your receipt. <laughs> here, here's your copy of Eat, Pray, Love. I love that you went Stephen King, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of, like, the most famous. He's pretty famous, yeah. I would, yeah, uh, who else is famous? I'm like, Joan Didion. Joan Didion's famous? Who's still alive? Who's writing books that's still alive? Uh, Eat, Pray, Love. That lady? Lady. Eat, Pray, Love lady, famously. Uh, uh. Why is it a challenge to name living authors? Besides Stephen King? Yeah, um. I'm, I think it's just because, like, you and I don't. Michael Crichton? Is yeah. he a writer? In the 90s, yes! <laughs> well, I think it's because you and I mostly read nonfiction, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah, and people who are dead, a lot of dead Or people. I read, like, manga, and I'm, I'm, like, a big comic nerd. Well, okay, so Alexandria, the library was staffed by, for example, grammarian and poet uh, Callimachus, who died in 240 BC, astronomer and writer Eratosthenes, who died around 194 BC, Philosopher Aristophanes of Byzantium, who died. Not Aristophanes. In, yeah, working at the library, <laughs> 180 BC, and the foremost critical scholar of antiquity in the West, uh, Aristarchus of Samothrace, who died in 145 BC. Heard he was very sexy. <laughs> Not Aristarchus. So the next region we're going to talk about with their kind of early history libraries would be Anatolia which is sometimes called Asia Minor, and that would be around present-day Turkey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was a library that was so great, it rivaled the Alexandria Library. And it was set up at Pergamum during the reigns of Attalus uh, I, Soter, died 197 BC, and Eumenes II, who died around 160 or 159 BC, depending on your sources. And Ptolemy uh, Philadelphus banned the export of papyrus from Egypt during this time. So... What historians think happened is that parchment was actually developed there in Asia Minor, a.k.a. present-day Turkey-ish, so that they could continue to copy books because they didn't have access to that Egyptian papyrus. And this was major because parchment was actually more durable than papyrus. So this meant that these texts were lasting longer. And this library was bequeathed uh, when the whole of the kingdom of uh, Pergamum was bequeathed to the Roman people in 133 BC, and Plutarch records uh records sorry an allegation that mark anthony actually gave this library's 200,000 volumes to cleopatra to become part of the alexandrian library very sexy very gift. sexy gift yeah part of a library it's like what's the bumper sticker it's like reading is sexy yeah that's what mark anthony said to cleopatra reading is sexy and then he Take put on this. a pair of nerd glasses <laughs> with no lenses Uh, And then also we've got Rome, right? Um, So in Rome, early libraries mostly were private libraries. Like a lot of just like private people maintained libraries, like Cicero, for example. And it was considered really fashionable. Like if you had a library, it was like, ooh, reading is sexy. I mean, if someone has a library, I think that they're rich. Yeah, yeah, totally. So this was like a status thing. Um, And the poet Lucian even referenced, like, a type of person who had a library, and he called them an uncultured book clown. (laughs) So this was, like, a thing. This was, like, a hotbed of debate. Oh, you're into books? Yeah. Ew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a book clown. You're stupid. You're into books. 
<laughs> so in Rome, you know, it was fashionable, and then people were making fun of how fashionable it was. I imagine much like owning a pair of Yeezys, it can go either way. You In some camps could be considered very fashionable, in other camps you could be considered an uncultured Yeezy clown. So um, when we've done excavations now as humans at Rome and at Herculaneum, they've revealed library rooms in private houses. And sometimes they would have like bookcases lining the entire walls of a room. And this Roman statesman in general, who has a great name, Lucius Licinius Lucullus. Mm. Yeah, I love an alliteration. He um, was supposed to be one of the richest men in the Roman world around this time. And he was really famous for having this like luxurious way of life. And he had a huge library that he got as part of war booty, right? And he actually was pretty generous with it. He was like, yeah, I got this big library. Anybody who's interested, you can come use it. You can check it out. And his biographer, Plutarch, spoke really, like, fondly about the quality of this guy's book collection. And Cicero even told a story about visiting the library to borrow a book and just finding his friend Cato there, hanging out, like, reading books on the Stoic philosophy. And I think it's funny they had books on the Stoic philosophy because the Stoics didn't have books. Really? Yeah, because they didn't like any earthly possessions. And a book's an earthly possession. Oh. I don't know that much about Stoicism, except for people say that I'm very stoic when I get blood taken, but I think they don't realize is that I just don't move because I don't want them to poke me more. Oh, yeah. Um, No, I think that the whole stoic philosophy is more... I mean, maybe there's, like, an element of austerity to it. Yeah, it's austere, and maybe, like, having no reaction to things could be considered an austere... Yeah, I definitely have been called stoic uh, more than a few times. Well... We've got also in Rome, Julius Caesar, right? And he planned a public library. Remember, we got a bunch of people with private libraries, but he was like, we're going to do a public one. And he was like, "Uh, I've got all these plans and they're going to be implemented by this scholar and writer that I really respect, uh, Marcus Terentius Varro. And he was actually an author of a treatise on libraries called De Bibliotecis, which has unfortunately not survived because everything was written on papyrus and parchment falling apart, like we talked about. But Caesar died before his plans were carried out. Despite that, though, a public library was built within five years after his death by a literary patron named Asinius Polio. So this famous writer, Pliny the Elder, uh, described the foundation of the library in his work, Natural History. And he said, he made men's talents a public possession, which is pretty poetic. Wow. Yeah, that's how we describe the library. Uh, Libraries were also set up in Rome by Tiberius, Vespasian, Trojan, and lots of other later emperors. Uh, Trojan in particular set up the Bibliotheca Opia, which was established around 100, the year 100 uh, AD, and continued into the 5th century. And this was also considered the public record office of Rome. So there's also Byzantium, which is considered a kind of different place. It is present-day Istanbul, Turkey, and Constantinople was there, and it had libraries. So around the year 300 CE, Constantine the Great ordered 50 copies of the Christian scriptures to be made to go into this library, and the scholarly libraries at Constantinople ended up amassing really large collections. So for a thousand years, they preserved these collections through generations of teachers, copyists, and editors, And, uh, you know, these kind of libraries became really treasured and popular in the region. They did sometimes have some texts that didn't make it, that did, they lost them. But this was kind of because in the ninth century, it became like a trend to just replace original texts with like summaries, kind of like the for dummies guide of the text, which is 
kind of weird. I mean, part of me thinks it's funny because it's very utilitarian. It's like, yeah, 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 here's the gist of it. This is what this guy was saying. But you know, a lot of work was lost, which I guess is sad depending on how into this stuff you are. And the greater part of the Greek classics, though, was faithfully preserved and handed on to the schools and universities of Western Europe from this library. We also have, at this time, the Islamic world, right? So when the prophet Muhammad died in the 7th century, his disciples wrote his teachings in the Quran. And this was all written on papyrus originally. And this was like the religion of Islam. And in Islam, literacy was super encouraged. And people were really encouraged to read and memorize parts of the Quran. And this led to the establishment of libraries full of sacred texts that popped up. And, you know, a lot of people in positions of power in the Islamic world, like the first caliph of Umayyad dynasty, organized personal libraries and maintained personal libraries into these kind of prototypes that successors would further improve and expand upon. So keeping a library really became like this art that generationally people built on. And the Caliph al-Walid, uh, who reigned from 705 to 715, appointed the very first curator of books as like mm. a role, as like a job, because it became very, very important in the Islamic world. And by that time, the Umayyad collection included hundreds of work on astrology, alchemy, medicine, and military science. Then in the year 750, the Abbasids seized large portions of, you know, this empire. And under the leadership of al-Mansur, who was a calif caliph, caliph? Caliph? Caliph in the region. C-A-L-I-P-H. Everyone who listens to this knows pronunciation is not my strong suit because I am a weird nerd who reads words in books and doesn't talk to people very much. Apparently, that's the marking of a weird nerd, someone who can't pronounce a word right but has read it many times. Oh my god. I mean, I am there too. Also, in fashion, oh, I was saying vediments for years. Yeah, it can be a really humiliating experience. Um, or it can be a charming quirk about our podcast that leads you to delight in us and humanize us. Yes. Uh, just so you know, just so you don't make the, stake, the same mistake as me. It's vetement. Vetement. Oh, and someone who speaks French will be like, no, that's not it. Yeah. But um, it's not, definitely not vetements. It's definitely not vetements. <laughs> so uh, under the leadership of, you know, this new group who seized portions of this empire, lots of classical Persian and Greek works were translated into Arabic. And shortly after this, Muslims uh, adopted the technique of paper making, which was learned from the Chinese prisoners of war that they interacted with with and this increased their capacity to reproduce these written works of you know history and religion very cheaply and also assisted in the growth of libraries so by the 10th century baghdad and cordoba had the largest book markets in the world and christian monks and scholars would regularly like be sent there to go acquire new works because they were really good at making books and at keeping records and keeping copies of things so there were notable libraries in Baghdad, Cairo, Alexandria, of course, in Spain. And there was also like an elaborate system of public libraries in the early world in Spain, which centered on Cordoba, Toledo, and Granada. So we got human history trucking along. We got people all over the world uh, who had written language anyway, keeping records of things, writing books out. We're developing better techniques of writing the stuff like the paper we're writing on and maintaining these records in libraries. And this kind of gets us up to like the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So the Middle Ages, you know, was from the year 500 to 1500 and the Renaissance was 1300 to 1600. So this is kind of a big chunk of time where some stuff starts happening. So in Europe, one of the things that really drove like the existence of libraries was monasteries. Mm. Which makes sense because like we were talking about in the Islamic world when people need to reference religious texts when they want to learn about religion You need lots of copies of these religious texts laying around for people to look at 
So Christianity was spreading throughout Europe and monastic communities, monasteries were set up and books were a huge part of this. Uh, in particular, the Benedictine order, they recognized the importance of reading and studying and they made mention of a library with a person appointed to issue the books and even take daily inventory of them. And there were also places where manuscripts were copied out. They were called scriptoria. This is where you would work copying yes. the scripts. Yeah. And they were really common in monasteries. And there were rules for how you were supposed to use the books. Uh, and if you took any books, if you made off with them, a curse was put upon you. Whoa. You were cursed. Yeah. Whoa. Yes. Books were, however, lent to other monasteries and even to the secular public against security. And in this way, yeah, the monasteries started to perform the function of like a public library. So monastic libraries were, yeah, mostly full of scriptures, the writings of the early church fathers, commentaries on them, chronicles, histories, uh, philosophical writings to some degree, like from St. Thomas Aquinas or, you know, Bacon, and possibly some secular literature, which will be represented by the Roman poets Virgil and Horace, and of course the orator Cicero, which we talked about earlier. But this kind of came to an end in 1536 to 1540, when the religious houses were all suppressed by Henry VIII. And when this happened, there weren't really any organized steps taken to preserve these libraries that were in these monasteries. And in 1550, Henry VIII and Edward VI aligned with this new learning of the humanists and universities. And these universities and churches and school libraries were purged of a lot of books which they thought embodied the old learning of the Middle Ages. So this is a lot of documents that were lost around this time. But some kind of places in Europe were safer than others, right? Europe's a big place. The Reformation leader Martin Luther, for example, he passionately believed in the value of libraries. So in 1524, he sent a letter to all the German towns uh, that he was visiting, and he insisted that they should not um, cut any corners setting up libraries. So like, you guys should build libraries, get some more libraries, take care of your libraries. And as a result of this, lots of town libraries in Germany, including those at Hamburg and Augsburg, actually go back to this time, like 1529 and 1537, respectively. Wow. You know, uh, I think I saw like a TikTok or online or something about people think of, you know, the dark ages, the medieval times and how like it, there was nothing going on, but they were like, it's actually just because we have no records of that time. Yes. And my guess is because of this purge. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, a considerable portion of the libraries that had been kind of uh, messed up because of the suppression, by 1660, they started to be reassembled into collections because a few people really took it on themselves to seek out all these lost texts and try to piece this together. And they went to places like Corpus Christi College at Cambridge. They went to uh, the British Museum Library. And they went to the Bodley Library at Oxford. So people kind of assembled what they could from this era. And then they sent them away to these major libraries. We also had universities around this time. Around 1000 CE is when universities were founded. And kind of like monk students, they called them monkish students. <laughs> they would deposit into the libraries their lecture notes that they made on Aristotle and Plato, on law, on medicine. And this actually expanded the library's contents. So all of these libraries at these newly created universities uh, were built up on the basis also of those old monastic collections that we talked about that were destroyed and people found them and sent them to these new university libraries. And in Europe, the libraries of the newly founded universities were the main centers for the study of books until the late Middle Ages because, you know, books were pretty expensive at the time and time-consuming to make. So if you wanted a book, you know, the universities had them. You probably didn't have a lot of books in your personal home unless you were super, super rich. 
But libraries in Germany started suffering severely during the Thirty Years' War. Like the Bibliotheca Palatina at the University of Heidelberg, which was founded in 1386, was taken as a spoil of war by Maximilian I of Bavaria, who then offered it to Pope Gregory I don't know, the 15th in 1623. Uh, Gustavus Adolphus sent whole libraries to Sweden. And this kind of collection of the Royal Library in Stockholm was enriched by that war booty that came to Sweden during the reign of Queen Christina and Charles X. So we got a lot of conquering. We got a lot of domination. We got a lot of these texts being sent around as like plunders of war. We also though have in addition to like the monasteries and universities, there are still private book collections mostly by the wealthy. So in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, we've got these private book collections growing. And it's a lot of rich people who are doing this. We've got the French King Charles V, who is thought to be the founder of the Bibliothèque du Roi, the King's Library, which later became the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library in Paris. There were also some like new cultural factors going on at the time. We've got commerce growing. We've got the Renaissance, which was uh, based on newly discovered classical texts, remember, because people were losing things and finding them and they'd be like, oh, this is interesting. We had Johannes Gutenberg's invention of the printing press, which made it a lot easier to recreate books. And a substantial expansion of like just literacy came about as a result of that. Suddenly it was easier to make books and it was easier for the average person to learn how to read. And this widened the circle of book collectors to now include like wealthy merchants whose libraries would contain things like books of law or medicine. And you know, we start to see kind of just more people gaining wealth and more people having access to books. So we had Italian humanists at this time, like Petrarch and Giovanni Boccaccio, searching for and copying manuscripts of classical writings to help establish new scholarly libraries. And we also had scholars Niccolo Nicoli, uh, who was the librarian actually to Cosimo de' Medici, who's the famous uh, 14th century ruler of Florence, who's considered like one of the biggest patrons of the arts in all of history, the mm -hmm. Medici family, and Gian uh, Francesco Poggio Bracciolini. They shared like an enthusiasm for the classics and they actually ransacked Europe and the Middle East looking for manuscripts of anything they could find that was written in Greece and Rome. So there's a lot of looting. There's a lot of, it's very like violent. It's a violent history of books. So if you think violence is sexy, you know, the books are sexy maybe. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of war with the libraries and the books. Okay. Well, it seems to me that's like a huge part of warfare is the information war. Yeah, and also, like, I know, like, these people were mostly doing it to be like, look what I have. I have access to this special little thing. But there's also the element, I think, where sometimes when you conquer someone, you do want to destroy their history, and it's an element of cultural genocide. Y yeah, totally. Yeah. So we had a lot of personal book collections really growing along this time, a lot of private libraries. And the basis of Nicoli's library, uh, you know, De Medici, Cosimo De Medici set up the Biblioteca Marciana in Florence uh, in San Marco. And also the grandson of Cosimo, Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was an even greater patron of the arts, right? These Medici family. He was very magnificent. He was so magnificent. <laughs> and he had a private library and that eventually became a public library. It was opened in 1571 in a beautiful building designed by Michelangelo and it still exists today um, there in Italy. Also around this time, the Vatican Library was founded. Mm. Yeah. So as we're in this new era, kind of the Islamic world has some developments too, like the European monastic libraries, book collections in the Islamic countries. At first, we're attached to religious institutions like mosques, you know. 
but soon scholars were donating their personal collections to the mosques uh which usually only kept the religious books but they would sometimes set up like an adjunct library where the books that were more secular would be placed there and these secular collections were open to the public so like a public library there were also lots of large collections housed in palaces and the homes of the wealthy like we were seeing in europe and typical private and public collections would have like regional histories works of geography travel astrology and alchemy so after this kind of era we enter the 1600s and 1700s and we've got the private collections booming like book collection everywhere becomes super widespread throughout europe and north america lots of fine private collectors start to get assembled and lots of them eventually become the core of what we think of as today's national and state libraries throughout Europe and kind of the United States and Canada. In the 18th century, especially in England, but also other places in Europe and in the United States, it was really like popular to circulate like books with your kind of community of other rich guys and there were subscription libraries that started to take hold. So this would be kind of like private society groups that would give people reference services, they would lend their collections out for members, and they had a lot of influence on popular literary taste, especially in the world of fiction. So the private libraries were of these powerful and influential private collectors like Cardinal Mazarin in France. And they were so big that at a certain point, people had to start to develop like new approaches to organizing libraries. And this is where we really start to see libraries emerge visually, like organization wise, as we think of them today. So Mazarin's library was kind of headed up by Gabriel Naude, who produced the first modern treatise on library economy in 1627 called Advice on Establishing a Library. And there had been this old practice of like chaining books to their cases. They got rid of that. And they also started to change the way the books were laid out to the arrangement we think of today, which is standing with their spines facing outward. That was the first time we kind of saw this around France at this time. And... This probably actually started with a personal library of this lawyer who was also like a historian and they call him a bibliophile, uh, Jacques-Auguste de Thou. Uh, again, the pronunciations, you guys really gotta... Yeah, me with, me, as you could tell, me with French, not good. Me with anything that's not a California Valley Girl accent. Um, yeah, so also the diarist Samuel Pepys at this time, in the last 14 years of his life, he started to devote a lot of time to how his library was organized. He ended up leaving his library to the Magdalene College at Cambridge. So as, you know, the private collectors were growing, we talked a little bit about the subscription libraries, but the subscription libraries also were born out of literary salons, which I'm sure we've heard a lot about. I remember learning about this all when we were learning about European history in like high school. So before public libraries spread across like the United States, for example, after the Revolutionary War, people were looking for outlets to access and discuss literature. And during the Enlightenment, this came about in the form of literary salons, which were really popular in France and Italy. And it was just a bunch of rich people getting together in someone's house. And it was a space where you could have conversations about art or politics and literature. And these were thought of as being kind of empowering for wealthier women at the time because they were still barred from formal learning spaces. And now they had this place to exchange ideas, to read books, to share their writings, to debate with each other and with men. So this, if you were like a wealthy white lady, the salons were really, really your speed. They were really cool. Or if you were like a middle-class white lady. And there were also private book clubs that developed that were different than these literary salons. So we start to have non-religious texts, you know, coming out more secular writing. Literacy rates in the 1700s are improving. And the wealthy men started to have these private book clubs, which themselves later evolved into subscription libraries as well. So we've got the women mostly doing the literary salons. and We've got the men doing the private book clubs. 
So these subscription or membership libraries that came from these men's private book clubs were funded by membership fees or donations. And then if you were a member, a paying member, then you could access the collection. Today, there are, you know, a little under 20 membership libraries in the United States. And most of them focus on like really rare material or special collections. They would be something really specific, like from the late 1700s to the mid 1800s, though, they were springing up in cities across the country and maybe a little more varied and diverse than they are today. Yeah, I would imagine it would only be the rare books. Which yeah, I also uh, as part of the, the also the rare book collection I worked oh. in. I have handled the Gutenberg Bible. Wow. And the Autobahn collection. Wow. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Honestly, I'm a little taken back by that. I didn't expect that. I'm a little starstruck by you at the moment. Um, so the first of these kind of subscription libraries was thought to have been formed in Philadelphia in the United States. And that was actually under the direction of Benjamin Franklin. And it was called the Library Company. So in pre-Revolutionary War America, you know, books were pretty hard to come by unless you were really rich or you were a member of the clergy. So the expense and rarity of books meant that, you know, if you were just middle class or lower class, you didn't really have access to reading material that easily. And in 1731, Benjamin Franklin was like, okay, we're going to set up this membership library, this, you know, subscription library in the American colonies. So Franklin worked with other members of this new American bourgeoisie and petite bourgeoisie and what was called the Junto, a club of self-described thinkers that would gather to discuss what they called queries on any point of morals, politics, or natural philosophy, as Franklin described in his autobiography. So Franklin and these other Junto members, which were primarily merchants, aka the capitalists, they owned some books and they were looking for a way to access a lot more to kind of fuel their weekly discussions. So they used money from all of the members alongside a 40 shilling investment from each of the library's first 50 members. And they, together as a library company, organized and started their first book collection. And by 1732, they sent the library's first book order to London, which was very fancy and a big deal Ooh. for them. And a lot of these uh, early books that they had in this library were all about education or religion. The majority of the library company's books were written in English, which was actually pretty rare because at the time, most other private and university libraries, their collections were mostly in Latin. So library members then could access these books as they wanted, while non-members would have to provide collateral if they wanted to borrow books. So you could still borrow a book, but you needed collateral of some kind. Um, also throughout the 1600s and 1700s, we have parish and monastery libraries still going strong. In England, there's a number of parish libraries that get established, and they're usually attached to churches, and they're, uh, you know, intended for the clergy. And one of the earliest was at Grantham in Lincolnshire, and that was set up as early as 1598. And some of its original chained books are still there that you can see. Wow. Also, there was a Manchester merchant named Humphrey Chetham who left money in 1653 for the foundation of parish libraries in Bolton and Manchester, and also for the establishment of just a town library in Manchester, which still exists uh, today in its original building. There was also the Escorial Library in Madrid, which was built in 1584. And that was the first to do away with those medieval book bays, which were set at like right angles to the light source and to instead arrange its collections as we think of it today in bookcases lining the walls. We also had around this time, national libraries popping up in Europe. So that guy Naude from the past, he had this concept of a scholarly library, right? That was systematically arranged, displaying the whole of recorded knowledge, which would be open to any scholar who wanted to come. And this idea was really getting popular at this time. 
So it was really absorbed by this philosopher named Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who uh, lived from 1646 to 1716, and he was a prominent librarian around this time. So he had this idea to build a national bibliographical organization that would provide any scholar with easy access to everything that had ever been written on whatever subject he was looking for. Wow. This was a really big idea. This was like Wikipedia for back then. So European scholarship and inquiry was like really expanding throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, especially in the field of like history and philosophy. And national libraries just started to make more and more sense. They're like, we need one place to put all of this stuff, like centralize the knowledge. So in France, Ditheau, who was, you know, a collector, right, a pretty famous prominent collector, was made the director in 1593 of the King's Library, that library that was founded by Charles V. And, uh, you know, also reorganized a lot during the 15th century by Louis XII. Mazarin's library was scattered because he was forced to leave France during, you know, the Fronde, this period of unrest. But it was reassembled when he returned in 1653. And it was rehoused in a new building and then opened to the public in 1691. And it remained one of France's great libraries, kind of like a national library, until after the French Revolution, when it was then incorporated with other collections, including the Bibliothèque de Roy, to form the official Bibliothèque Nationale. Today, the French library, one of the world's great libraries, the National Library. And there was also um, Duke von Braunschweig, who established the library in 1604, that later became the Herzog August Bibliothekat Wolfenbüttel, which is one of the finest libraries in Europe. Uh, you know, Leibniz was his librarian from 1690 to 1616. And a library was also established by Friedrich Wilhelm of Brandenburg in 1659, and that became the Prussian State Library. So we really start to see, like, oh, that's happening, and all these different countries in Europe were like, we got a national library now. Uh, in England, we saw this happen. We had some English book collectors, right, who uh, formed the basis of the British Museum collection, 1753, which is sketchy if you know anything about the British Museum, right? Oh, God. Yeah, they're just like, oh, we're looting the world. We're taking it all. It's ours. And there was a mu museum, yeah, but there was also a library that was a part of that. So the library... Uh, had all sorts of books collected by the kings of England from Edward IV to George II. Now, the thing about France is that following the French Revolution, all of those books, remember, were collected and put into this new national kind of library. And a lot of them were taken from smaller libraries, from aristocratic families. And this was this goal of coordinating library resources throughout the country. But they ended up losing a lot of books in this process. Still, though, the emerging national library that was created, the Bibliothèque Nationale, did have 300,000 volumes of text in it. And that was pretty cool. And they set up kind of like smaller libraries uh, that were kind of branches of it. So, you know, this process of making these national libraries picked up steam in the 1600s and 1700s, but we did lose some text during this time. But that was major. It was a major change to have like a country have its own library. So now we get to the 1800s. These libraries, getting massive. Growth, haphazard and all over the place. Administration, pretty weak, pretty weak. <laughs> Standards of service, non-existent. Funds to acquire text for your library, pretty paltry, not great. Librarians, usually part-time workers who don't really know what they're doing. And cataloging, no proper methods. All right, we got library chaos happening in the 1800s. So we start to have some key players emerge to be like, we're going to clean up the library system. We're going to make it function better. So one of these guys is Johann Gessner, who is at the University Library at Gottingen. 
So he made strenuous efforts to kind of like make sure all departments of learning were adequately covered with materials that were beneficial, good catalogs of carefully selected literature, and kind of turned over the reins to the library's next director, C.G. Hain, who followed the same principles in Johann Gessner's footsteps. And as a result, Gondon became the best organized library in the world at the time. Somebody was like, oh my God, this is how you do it. There's a system in place. Around this time, also, we've got Antonio Panizzi, who was a political refugee from Italy who started to work for the British Museum, Womp Womp, in 1831, and was its principal librarian from 1856 to 1866. And he also revolutionized library administration. He was like, look, all the books we got here, they should match, like, a set of objectives that we declare. So we tell people what we're trying to do here. We're going to say what our objectives and goals are, and the books are going to match it, and this is going to be a great national library. So he was like, we need a good catalog, but we also need a code of rules for everybody cataloging these books to follow. So it all makes sense and it's rational. And he saw the potentials of library in like a modern community as an instrument of study and research that would be available to everybody. And he planned this British Museum reading room and it kind of showed like, okay, there's potential here for libraries to be really good for a lot of people. And his ideas really took over and kind of dominated the idea of library organization, research libraries, and even our Library of Congress here in Washington, D.C. in the United States is based on this guy, Antonio Penizzi. Well, yeah. So public libraries start to be a thing as we're talking about. We're talking about the national libraries. We're talking about all these rich guys being like, what if anybody could just access this? What if there was like a reading room you could come just sit in? And by 1790, Benjamin Franklin started donating uh, books. So he donated a collection of books here in the United States to a Massachusetts town that named itself after him. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was like, you like me? I like you. Here's a bunch of books. Uh, the kind of bitchy thing, though, he did is the town was like, we love you, Benjamin Franklin. Will you donate a bell? And he was like, no, nah, fuck the bell. <laughs> no. <laughs> he was like, sense is more important than sound, and sent them a bunch of books, which is annoying but okay whatever and they're like yay thank yeah. you yeah they were like cool not what we wanted but okay so the residents of the town franklin massachusetts they voted for all these donated books to be freely available for town members and that actually kind of created the nation's first public library wow yeah by the middle of the 19th century this idea was kind of accepted that maybe community libraries should be a thing and the public should be paying for them and like local government should be setting them up so this was a really significant stage in the development of public libraries and the funding for them. Now, Panizzi had said he wanted the facilities of a library to be available to even the poor students so they could indulge in their learned curiosity. And this kind of took hold. People were like, yeah, what if the poors could read books? <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of like, like this as like, also foreshadowing for how libraries kind of ended up but what if the poors could read yeah what if the wouldn't that be novel (laughs) what if the poors came and visited our fine establishment where we keep all of the magical books so then we could be like oh poor you yeah look what we've done to help you very here is a letter for you yeah (laughs) here is the letter j that is what we had on hand (laughs) So in England in 1850, an act of parliament uh, was passed enabling local councils to levy a rate like a tax for the provision of free library facilities. And after the Civil War in the United States came to a close in 1861, public libraries really began to spread around American towns and cities. So these libraries uh, were 
board governed, they were tax funded, and they operated not under a subscription model like the previous American libraries had. They were open to all, they didn't charge for their services, and they focused on serving the needs of the general public. So the first totally tax-supported library in the United States happened to be in Peterborough, New Hampshire in 1833. That's when that came about. But there were a lot of other kind of public libraries that had some milestones. There was the Darby Free Library in Pennsylvania, which has been in continuous service since 1793. And then there was the first large public library, which is the Boston Public Library, which was founded in 1848. Um, it kind of opened formally, according to some tax, in 1854, so that all Massachusetts residents could borrow from its collection, and it started out with 16,000 volumes. So not really the 300,000 volumes of, like, antiquity and these rich people, but still, 16,000, pretty good. And remember, these are written in English, right? Not Latin, so the average person can read them. So the first library school also opened up around this time, where you could go to get your master's in library science and become a librarian. And this happened in the United States at Columbia University School of Library Science, which was founded in 1887 by someone with a great name, Melville Dewey, the creator of the Dewey Decimal System. Oh, wow. Famous, famous in the book world. People are cheering, people are yelling, people are dropping their jaws. So the program left Columbia two years later with Dewey to spend the next 37 years in Albany at the New York State Library School, new, new foundation. And library schools were often directed by men, but operationally, they started to get run by women faculty members who also taught the majority of the classes. And lots of these programs weren't run out of colleges, but were run out of working libraries staffed by women. So this model allowed librarians to share all of their professional experience, um, but they would also be able to show you in real time things like cataloging, collection development, reference, also children's librarianship, and lots of other growing new fields in library sciences. And in the 1890s, under the Denver Public Library director, John Cotton Dana, little wow. Colorado for you, libraries shifted their physical design just from like housing materials and spaces that were accessible only to librarians to giving patrons direct access to collections. Yeah, the Denver Public Library is pretty huge. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's like pretty old too. Yeah, so like, I mean, the 1890s. So instead of you know, going and being like, I want a book on this, or I'm looking for this and talking to a librarian who would get it for you. Now you just walk in. You could just look at books. This was like a new kind of approach, right? And public libraries around the country started to take on this Denver Public Library model. And the transition meant that the role of the reference librarian changed. Like they were no longer a gatekeeper. You had to get through to get the information on the books. Instead, they were like a research supporter, a facilitator. You could find the books. And if you had questions, you could ask them. And they were there kind of to assist and guide you on the way. So the reference librarian's work would now be answering research questions and helping finding more materials to match your interests. And reference librarians also would help create these like pathfinders, which were research guides to help get a search started for things that people were commonly looking for. You know, they'd be like, here's the plan, you're researching something in medicine, uh, botany, right? I don't know, whatever. They'd be like, here's your plan for medicine. Here's your plan for botany. So reference librarians do still exist today. Libraries often will have like a reference desk and you can contact them in person. You can talk to them over the phone. You can do it online. And these reference librarians today uh, are still the most direct point of access for just regular people looking to use their public library. They're the people who are going to help direct you to where you need to go. Yeah, reference librarians are like, in my experience, really good at helping you find stuff. Yeah, and they really, job. really want to help you. It's so funny. This actually makes sense because... <clears throat> where I went to school, the University of Denver, 
we had like I think one of the biggest library science programs like uh, west of the Mississippi. Wow. Um, and this makes sense because the Denver Library is so old. It's so, old, and they had a really they were important. They had they put their stamp on how libraries developed yeah, in the United and States. Now I realize like. Wow, like the Denver Library was so huge and like so like it was such a thing like when I was in college. So this actually I was like, oh wow, this kind of uh makes sense. Yeah. Um the other thing you referenced earlier is the Carnegie Libraries. Yes, because my hometown has a Carnegie Library that is like still looks like it's from the eighteen it's fully like restored on the inside. It's beautiful, like woodwork like flo- like wooden floors like it's it's very pretty yeah so okay so what these carnegie libraries are for anybody who doesn't know from 1883 through the early 1900s the famous capitalist andrew carnegie began funding the construction of around 2500 public libraries and this actually earned him the nickname the patron saint of libraries and out of them around 1800 were in the united states and uh 1600-ish were public libraries uh, a little over, more like 1,700 were public libraries and around 100 were academic libraries. But they were also built some in Europe, in South Africa, Barbados, Australia, and New Zealand. And you know, Carnegie was a really rich guy. He was a wealthy industrialist in the United States, uh, but he believed in philanthropy, at least as a PR move. So he was born in Scotland and he moved in with his family uh, to Pittsburgh at around 13 years old and he grew up pretty poor. But when he was young, he would, you know, go to the library, a local private library on Saturday afternoons because he was invited there by this like wealthy man in Pittsburgh. So he started to get really into libraries as a concept. And as he got older, he started Carnegie's Keystone Bridge Company, which uh, worked to replace wooden bridges with iron ones. And then later the Carnegie Steel Company. And he also invested some money in the United States Steel Corporation. And this ended up making him like a steel tycoon. Like he ended up really, really rich. But like all rich guys, his business choices made him rich and messed up life for a lot of working class Americans, right? So, uh, you know, he proved there's no such thing as a good rich guy. So a couple things happened in his life that were really made him look really bad. They were really unpopular with the American people. And everyone kind of thinks that he started doing this library thing as a way to be like, look, 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 I'm not such a bad guy. I do philanthropy. I build libraries. Bill Gates. Yeah, basically every rich guy we know today. So the two things that happened were the Homestead Strike and the Johnstown Flood. So the Homestead Strike is sometimes called the Homestead Massacre. And this is just a situation where workers went on strike. Uh, They saw the Carnegie Steel Company growing immensely, getting super profitable. The owners getting really, really rich and their wages are dropping, right? Classic worker exploitation story. So the workers go on strike to demand better wages from the Carnegie Steel Company. And the Carnegie Steel Company uh, responds, not great. 16 people are killed in a bloody confrontation between the workers and the Pinkerton security guards, which were hired by the company. You know what's wild? I feel like, uh, did you hear that story about Pinkertons basically going to that YouTuber's house because they got a Magic the Gathering card game too early? No. And the toy company sent Pinkertons to their house. Whoa. Yeah. Wild. Um, the second thing is the Johnstown Flood, which happened in 1889. So the town of Johnstown had been built into a river valley and it did experience periodic flooding. 
But in 1889, something happened that was really unmatched. It wasn't like any other flooding that I've experienced. So the South Fork Dam was 14 miles above the city and it held back a Lake Connemau, which was the lake of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, which was a fancy rich guy club, which had some wealthy, wealthy capitalists like Andrew Carnegie on the membership, right? So the club owned the Western Reservoir, the dam that created it, and around 160 acres of land in the area. And this club had like a 47 room clubhouse, a huge dining room that seated 150 people, 16 privately owned cottages, which were actually houses of like a huge size along the lake shores. They had a boat fleet that had a pair of steam yachts, sailboats, canoes, and boathouses to store them in. They also had this like really grand entertainment, annual regattas, theatricals, musical performances. This was just like fancy rich guy playground, 14 miles above the little town of Johnstown. And the club did engage in periodic maintenance of the dam. Remember, they owned the dam. It was their job to keep this dam, you know, strong and doing what a dam's supposed to do. But in the process of maintaining it, they also uh, did some things that benefited them and made some structural kind of bad things happen to the dam. So they installed, for example, fish screens across the spillway to keep the expensive game fish from escaping their little rich guy club area. Uh, they also, like, in doing this, it ended up capturing debris and keeping the spillway from draining the lake's overflow. They lowered the dam by a few feet so they could make it possible for two carriages to pass at the same time. So the dam was only like four feet higher than the spillway. The club never reinstalled drainage pipes that they were supposed to so the reservoir could be properly drained. And in 1889, the dam failed. So when the dam fails, it's catastrophic. Like within an hour, a body of water the engineers at the time said moved into the valley with the force of Niagara Falls just plummeted into Johnstown. Uh, with 14 miles of accumulated debris, which included houses, barns, animals, and people, a mix of dead and alive. Just coming into this town with the force of Niagara Falls. Oh my god. Yeah, and people who saw it coming said it was a rolling hill of debris about 40 feet wide and half a mile wide. And most people were like, I never saw it coming, I just heard the noise. Terrifying. Really, really major. And 2,209 people died during this flood yeah so this is like almost a 9-11 for references yeah and this included 99 entire families and nearly 400 children and bodies were found from this as far away as cincinnati which was like 350 miles away and as late as 1911 whoa yeah really 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 bad and the johnstown flood just kind of became emblematic of what Americans thought was going wrong with America. You know, it was a bunch of rich guys who didn't take care of their property right, and it ended up killing just a bunch of average working people. And one of those rich guys was Andrew Carnegie. So lots of people just saw these club members like Carnegie as robber barons who got away with murdering 2,200 people through their own negligence. So Carnegie had pretty, pretty bad reputation with the American public around this time. So he was like, I'm going to rehabilitate my reputation through philanthropy. And this is like most rich people, right, who donate a small pittance of their money to charity after earning it off of the backs of exploited workers. So when he asked, so when somebody asked him, rather, about the best philanthropic gift that you could give to a community, he said, it's a free library. So that's when he started building libraries. 
The first Carnegie Library was actually built in his hometown of Dunfermline, Scotland, and it opened to the public in 1883. And there was this motto that Carnegie always said, let there be light. And this motto was carved into the building sandstone entrance. But the first Carnegie Library that opened in the United States uh, opened just a few miles from Pittsburgh and Braddock, a town that was home to a mill for Carnegie Steel Company. And ultimately nine out of the first 13 Carnegie Libraries were built in this Pittsburgh area. So after 1898, thanks in part to like women's groups nationwide organizing to establish community libraries, Carnegie began expanding his efforts across the country and town started sending him requests being like, please build a Carnegie library here. And they would cite all sorts of reasons they deserved it the most. Like we need to counteract the influence of the town saloons. You know, we need to have a Carnegie library because a rival town of ours has one. And this is how he ended up building thousands of libraries. So this kind of gets us to the idea of modern public libraries from 1900 to today. And today we've got all sorts of libraries, right? We've got school libraries, private libraries, subscription libraries, and archives. But the three most prominent types of libraries we think of are national libraries, research libraries, like at colleges, and public libraries. So remember when we talked about like the idea of national libraries picking up steam in Europe, and we had like France forming theirs, and England forming theirs, and Prussia forming theirs. So in most countries by like the 1900s, there was a national or state library, or at least a group of libraries maintained by national resources that usually bore responsibility for publishing like national bibliographies and for maintaining some sort of national bibliographic information center. And these national libraries were trying to collect and preserve usually a nation's literature, um, but also would have some like international kind of stuff going on as well. And most national libraries will receive by legal right one free copy of every book and periodical printed in the country. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> so I've got three examples of big national libraries we're going to talk about. But, you know, there's a lot of these national libraries. I think most countries have them. So the first one that's most relevant to us here in the United States is the Library of Congress in the USA. It's located in Washington, D.C. And it might be the biggest national library, or at least one of them. And it especially focuses on a collection of modern books. It's pretty extensive. And it was founded in 1800, but it lost a lot of books during a bombardment of the capital by British troops in 1814. But you know, it's since recovered. So the library remained originally just a congressional library for lots of years. But the collections were notably enlarged by purchases and additions. And it became the National Library of the United States in effect, although not by law. So the public does have access to lots of its collections. Through a service that was started by this guy Herbert Putnam, who was a librarian from 1889 to 1939 there, the Library of Congress also makes its catalog available to lots of subscribing American libraries and institutions like a network. And through the Library of Congress classification, uh, printed catalog cards and marked cataloging, the library's practices are widely followed kind of around the world. It serves as a centralized bureau for information on like the acquisition of anything worldwide. It distributes cataloging data to other libraries and it has a huge role in the preservation of certain materials and the research and development of new methods of information storage and it's yeah pretty successful and influential around the globe. Uh, funny fact, uh, Putnam, distant relative of mine. Whoa! Yes. You are blowing my mind with this episode. <laughs> libraries run in your blood. Um, distant relative. Yeah. Wow. Another library that I thought was super interesting to talk about is the Russian State Library. So the Russian State Library, which is sometimes just called the RSL, it's the largest library in Russia and it's the second largest library in the world. And it was founded in 1862 and was part of the Moscow Public and Rumiantsev Museums. 
So leading up to the 1912 Marxist revolution though, libraries in Russia were pretty sparsely stocked, pretty scarce. There weren't a lot of them. They didn't have a lot of stuff in them. Like in 1913, following the revolution, only seven books per 100 Russian people were available in public libraries. And this was due to the czar's control that had happened prior to the Russian revolution. And because of that, the few books that were available were curated not to like educate library users, but just to be something that the czar's power didn't think was too troubling. Just like sweet pandering texts, you know? Seven books for every 100 people. Um, yeah, so leading up to the revolution, obviously Marxist texts were really popular in Russia. They were spreading and revolutionaries were circulating them in underground libraries, secretly housing the books and then secretly hosting reading groups to talk about the theory and the history of Marxism and, you know, dialectical materialism, all of that. Obviously, in 1912, the Russian Revolution happened and Vladimir Lenin became chairman of the Soviet Union that followed, right? So the vanguard party that had helped fight for the revolution, they were really interested in continuing to promote the political consciousness of the working class because the main tenet of Marxism is that the workers have class consciousness and they wanted everybody to kind of be aware and be educated and be literate and they wanted to have the libraries serve as a way for the average Russian to have access to information and learn about Marxist theory, but just about the world as well. So under that czarist pre-Marxist rule before the revolution, like 70% of people be between the ages of 9 to 49 years old in Russia were illiterate. Wow. Yeah, so hardly anybody was even able to read. So the role of the underground libraries in promoting revolutionary self-education meant that now that the Marxists had gained power, the library was going to become this central hub of communist adult education to try to get the masses not only able to read, but able to read important texts to their culture and that helped guide like the ruling ideas of the new Marxist-Leninist state. So Marxists first began tackling illiteracy in Russia to promote the political consciousness of the working class. They had all these like propaganda posters come out trying to encourage people to learn how to read and they wanted books to be really accessible to people. They wanted everybody to learn how to read. So there had been before the revolution this underground librarian and educator named uh, Nadezhda Konstantinova Krupskaya uh, who met Lenin in an underground reading group and eventually married him. And she was the head of adult education division of the Commissariat of Education, Commissariat of Education, sorry. And she's the one that began building libraries across Russia and acquiring books to meet all of the needs that she thought like the workers had on developing this communist state and getting all of the American, or the Russian workers at the time to the state of class consciousness. So on January 24th, 1924, the Russian State Library was officially renamed as the Lenin Russian Library. Uh, and then on February 6th, 1925, it became the Lenin State Library of the USSR. And she took um, this super, super seriously, right? So in 1934 to 1946, the new Lenin State Library also developed a new system of organizing material, which is super, super interesting. So they produced the Soviet Library Bibliographical Classification Scheme based on a Marxist-Leninist classification of knowledge. They were like, it's gonna be uniquely socialist. We're going to reject the bourgeois logic. We're going to give ample room to growing and contextualizing the works of Marx and Lenin and other historical and dialectical materialists that served as like the ideological backbone of the USSR and of Russia. The committee in charge of cultural institutions said that the library catalog should be in the hands of librarians, a keen ideological weapon that embodied the ideology of the communist state. 
So they used critical cataloging discourse, right? And we already know from like people who have been critical of like power structures and how it plays out in library systems and cataloging that look, any knowledge organization system is going to be rife with the ideology of the people who created it. So for the Soviet classification system, they were like, what if we just operate from that as the goal? What if our goal is to be very explicit about what ideology is guiding what texts? And as a result of this, they made 31 different classes in this new system. And they would have, uh, you know, classifications like straight up Marxist-Leninism or dialectical and historical materialism, uh, you know, the Bolsheviks, all Union Communist Party, politics and Soviet construction law, defense and military science. And then they would have other ones that were more general like labor, mathematics, the arts, and medicine or anti-religious literature. When the USSR was um, dissolved in 1991, you know, by January 22nd, 1992, the library became again the Russian State Library, and now it has more than 47 million books, documents, and artifacts, and there are 36 reading rooms located there, and nearly a million people visit every year. So it is still a pretty big library, and any citizen of Russia or any other state over the age of 14 years old can become a user there. The third one that's pretty major and we're talking about is the British Library, which was a part of the British Museum which is really sketchy. <laughs> so the British Museum for more than 200 years combined the Museum of Antiquities with a comprehensive library. And the British Museum is really famous, like we mentioned, for receiving a lot of antiquities in really unethical ways. Like they are famous for looting a bunch of historical artifacts from countries they exploited via capitalism and imperialism and straight up war, or that they bought from someone else who did the same. And you might remember we talked about this in one of our other episodes, but loot was the first word from India to enter the English language because of this. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this British library was founded in 1753 by the acceptance of the bequest of the collections of Sir Hans Sloane, who was the physician of King George II and president of the Royal Society. And it was kind of built on two other important collections that were going on at this time. And they also did the thing where there's a right to legally deposit one copy of every book that was published in the British Isles, kind of like we talked about with the US Library of Congress. And this kind of turned into a pretty massive uh, library collection. And finally, the British Museum's library was separated from the museum under the British Library Act of 1972. And on July 1st, 1973, it was reorganized as the British Library Reference Division. So it kind of grew and it's now a pretty massive library today, one of the biggest in the world. You know what I think about places that have to accept every book published? Huh. What is their adult section like? Oh! <laughs> That's a really good question. There's probably some freaky stuff in there. That's, I'm like, what's their porno section like? Wow. What happens if with, like, self-published books? Interesting question. Can you just put anything in the Library of Congress? Like, can you put your, like, fanfic that's, like, Doctor Who and Gilmore Girls erotic fan fiction, which I have not made. I'm there's like that rule of the internet, like it exists. I think it's rule thirty seven. It's like if 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 you can think of it, porn of it exists somewhere. I, I literally didn't make this, but I am. I was just like, what would be? Because uh, I was watching Gilmore Girls at the same time as Doctor Who at a very sad time in my life, mm -hmm. and I think that thought crossed my mind. Would Lorelai be a companion? I don't know. <laughs> this is what I was thinking. Well, there's probably some fanfic porny version of that in the Library of Congress, if I had to guess. Yes. And I, 
like the you know what makes it I'm like <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey isn't it? Probably, right? It has to be. It like, has to be. I'm sure there are librarians being like, "Yep, yep." Yeah. There's like a lot of uh, there's a lot of adult there's a lot of uh, adult <laughs> situations. Yeah. I like the idea of being in a really fancy library, but then there's one section where you open like saloon type doors and then there's like a red light and it's like got the like bow Oh, it's like the back room of the library. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like an old school video store, which I feel like if you're young, you might not remember that video rental stores used to exist and there would be a back room that was just the porn. And that for some reason had saloon doors. Yeah, there was always saloon style doors and the people would always enter and leave sh- shamefully. And you would always be trying to stare at who's going in and out of them. Oh, yeah. I re- yeah. yeah. It's funny because I remember going to that section when I had just turned 18. Oh, Rite of Passage. Um, Not to get a porno, but to get an art house movie that was rated X. Oh, interesting. Or uh, now NC-17. Right, right, right. They were rated X at the time. Yeah. Well, okay, so in addition to these national libraries, they're also still today, you know, we see the university and research libraries, right? Those are pretty important. Like, they exist at colleges all around the, the world. And usually these libraries are thought of as, like, the heart of a university, right? So a lot of academics will kind of go research at these libraries. And even, like, if you're not a student, like, say you're, like, a working professor, like, these libraries are really essential and a major part of research. And, you know, we still talk about them today at our colleges. They're considered very prestigious. There's, like, the Bodley Library at Oxford University, and there's the Harvard University Library in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, kind of like that. These are considered really big deals. And then, of course, we have the public libraries, which is, I think, what we think of when we think of a library today, right? So the practice of opening libraries to the public definitely was known in, like, ancient histories, early human histories, but... It took some opposition, like some fighting through this idea that, okay, yeah, we should be doing this and we should be funding it publicly. So in the 19th century, this idea that a library's provision was a legitimate charge of like the public funds, that's when we started to see that. We talked about that. People started to be like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe municipalities should be funding through tax money these libraries that everybody in the area can have access to and use. So the 1848 Boston Public Library, like we talked about, was the first major city public library in the U.S. and the first major one to be supported by direct public taxation. And in the U.K., similarly, the first tax-supported public libraries were set up in 1850. So pretty similar timeline happening in the U.K. and in the United States. And in 1876, 103 librarians from across the United States, 90 men and 13 women, met and founded the American Library Association with the goal of enabling librarians to do their work more easily and in a more cost-effective way, basically. So by the early 1900s in the United States, men from New England's elite families emerged as the predominant players in this, like, early U.S. library movement, which is where things start to get sketchy, if they hadn't been sketchy before. Libraries have a history marked by being the words of, you know, the scholars, right, the people who are considered very privileged and academic in society, and then being housed by very, very, very wealthy men. Like, libraries really were this, like, world for rich guys we saw all throughout history and this kind of continues in the united states throughout the 1900s so we've got these men from new england's elite families who are viewing librarians like missionaries they're like you are bringing civilization and reform to the masses through educational opportunity and this is where it gets a little weird it's pretty creepy right because these rich elite white dudes from new england probably had a pretty weird agenda 
agenda with what they considered civilization and reform. Like this is at a time when human beings could still be seen in zoos in New York, right? Just because they weren't white. Like in 1906, the Bronx Zoo had an exhibit called the Monkey House that held captive people who were all in different makeshift artificial exhibits of their homelands, including a Congolese man named Otabenga who was put on display with a monkey. So this is the type of New England elite rich spreading civilization and knowledge, right? I'm a little skeptical of their missionary work here. Uh, yes. Yeah, some real sketchy rich white dudes thinking that they're enlightening the masses, and it's just, it's gonna go bad. Um, also, it's worth mentioning that during these early phases, there was a lot of censorship happening at the public library level. Like, remember we talked about the Tsarist Russia, where the books that were allowed to exist were just ones that didn't upset the status quo too much or offend the Tsar, mm -hmm. and there were hardly any of them? Well, we had a little of that going on here, too. Like, from 1939 to 1941, The Grapes of Wrath was banned from the Kern County Free Library in this rural area of California that actually my grandmother moved to uh, when she left Los Angeles. And that's because Kern County was full of refugees fleeing the Dust Bowl the very people the book was written about. And this book, if you read it in high school, like most of us did, talked about farmers burning food while poor people looked on starving. There's just definitely a political thing and there was a political agenda in trying to keep this book from the masses, right? So this is kind of like the opposite of what the USSR's Lenin Library was trying to do, where they were like, hey, there's an obviously stated kind of political agenda with these texts and we we're just gonna tell you right out of the gate what they are. Instead of doing that, the US library system was like, we're just gonna withhold this book from the people. Yeah, and I it doesn't happen today at all. <laughs> yeah. Not, it's has not been in the news lately. Uh all books are free and allowed in all public schools. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> So lots of these white New England dudes who were trying to spread their version of civilization and culture through libraries, they were mostly well-connected graduates of New England fancy colleges, and some had careers in law and ministry, and some of them left those jobs to have second careers as librarians, much like the people at the library you worked at. Yeah, I, it's like one of those things I find, like, I feel like there's like a group of, I, you know, no offense if you are a lawyer, but I think there are people who are just like, I should be a lawyer because it's like, it's what you do. It'll, it'll get, you know, it's like, or people who become doctors, like right. a really high stress, high status position. Right. Um, mainly I can think of lawyers and doctors. I'm sure there's other things, yeah. but like where they, you get there and you're like, holy shit. Like this is fucked. I think and you're like, I want something nice and something like, you know, like for the people, like, you know, I want to feel like I'm giving back. So it feels like something like librarian or... Um, it's like akin to like a, a white saviorism thing. A little bit, yeah. Especially though, because these men had like a stated political agenda. Oh, these people for sure. I thought you were... Spread. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, just like, I can see, like, if I went to law school, I'm sure I would be like, oh, not for me. I would become a, a fashion designer. <laughs> You know, but I, these people for sure, white savior, but like, yeah, it seems like, um, this is just very anecdotally, but to me, it seems like there are certain careers that you can really only live comfortably at if you're already rich. Oh, yes. 100%. Uh, I think about you can, like, how can you be, for example, a social worker and drive a Land Rover. Right, 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 right. How can you be a librarian 
and afford to buy a house. Yeah. And I think it does. It does speak to this idea that, like, I'm giving back. It's philo- My job is philanthropy. I'm helping mm-hmm. people less than me. And this kind of ideology is really rooted in the American public library system, even today, which we'll talk about. So um, this is where we get into the thing that I did the foreshadowing on, which is the role of us white ladies and white lady adjacent people in the U.S. public library system. And I think it's important to remember that, like, white women have long been uh, standing next to white men as the oppressive class. And as white women, like, I think our instinct is to separate ourselves from that and be like, well, no, we are the victims of white men as well. And that's totally true. But, you know, as many people of color will tell you all day long, white women are one step down from the oppressors, but they are still the oppressors to them. Like, everything is intersectional. And it's important for white women to realize that, like, we are not absolved from our sins in upholding white supremacy. And I think the way that, like, women interacted in libraries during this time, I think it's really interesting politically. So we've got these kind of sketchy rich dudes trying to, like, spread their gospel of missionary work via the library, spreading specific information that they thought was interesting and important for the American people to learn. And alongside them, a number of women from these elite wealthy families also began to get involved, and they volunteered at libraries. Um, So, you know... It's a lot of white women stuff. We've got some revolutionary action happening. We've got Tessa Kelso, who was a controversial Los Angeles City librarian, who from 1889 to 1895 uh, transformed the LA Public Library using methods that were considered really radical. She abolished membership fees. She wanted open stacks, which is the term used to mean like anybody can just come in and look at the books. And she established the first systematic training for any type of library employee. And that was really cool. Uh, And by 1900, women had really come to dominate the operational work of the libraries, which we talked about earlier when we were talking about the, like, training system to get your master's in library science. We know that women were working in these libraries. And that's because library education was seen as a good career path for these white, middle, mostly middle class, but some working class women who either couldn't afford to go to college or just didn't want to go to college. It attracted women as a second career, you know. Some women continued their education after college with library school just because it offered them more focused and usable curriculum. And there weren't a lot of career paths available to women at this time. So librarianship appealed to them because the training was pretty short, their career path offered public service, and the nation was expanding westward, right, settler colonialism. So there were potential opportunities for adventure which is kind of, it's sketchy. It's settler colonials. It's sketchy. So we got some white women participating in the active genocide of the United States at this time, obviously. We've got Adelaide Haas, uh, who lived from 1868 to 1953. She was the originator of the system for classifying government documents, and she was always fighting for higher wages for women uh, and voting rights for women. So that was good. She had a lot of clashing with the male supervisors at the New York Public Library and their male board of trustees. And she eventually got fired from her job for being a mouthy broad. So I think as a mouthy broad, I appreciate that she was a mouthy broad, you know? Uh, In 1904, there was a librarian, Mary Cutler Fairchild, who would note that participation by women in the American Library Association meetings was disproportionate to their attendance. She was like, look, in these libraries, women are greatly outnumbering men, holding a large proportion of administrative positions, but with little responsibility. And women are not holding the positions that have the highest salaries, even though we're performing the same job. So we're just doing the same job for less money. So you do have a lot of what women of color in particular are talking about, like, white women's liberation going on at the time because it's important to remember that these steps that were being taken by these women fighting for equal pay and more rights they were white women fighting for this for mostly other white women 
And the role of these women in libraries, these middle-class white women, also led to the expansion of reaching children at this time. So that was kind of interesting. Like starting in the late 1910s, the idea of developing library spaces in schools became pretty popular. And this also led to a rise in literacy rates among children. So that was good. We had a movement for children's libraries, uh, which grew from here. And they began kind of organizing a professional community of practice within the section for library work with children, which came about in 1901. And they started to have things like reading rooms and story hours and also having like books that were on local schools summer reading lists. And this was like kind of a good thing. And this definitely came about because women were working in libraries and women were tasked with the majority of caregiving. And also one of the other few jobs that women could have was being a teacher. So if you have a woman teacher and women working in libraries, they're like, let's work together to do this thing for children. It wasn't until 1911 that the ALA, right, the American Library Association, finally elected its first woman president, Teresa Elmendorf, which is an excellent last name. Sounds like uh, uh, she lives at the Shire. Yes. And in 1915, the second female president of the ALA was named Mary Wright Plummer, uh, who actually helped found and direct the Pratt Institute Library School, which was a pretty progressive alternative to the elitism that was common in turn-of-the-century library education. So we did have some women doing some progressive things here. And as kind of the early 1900s continued on, library jobs in the eastern, more populated areas of the country got really competitive. And a lot of women librarians started to do that thing where they just moved to rural southern and remote western destinations to work. So kind of this expansion west thing. And lots assumed leadership positions at new libraries because they had all this skills and this knowledge and basically nobody wanted, no white people from the east wanted to move out to these kind of relatively in the middle of nowhere locations to run these libraries. So these were new jobs, but they came with like a lot of challenges. They were in remote places. They would often arrive to find that residents prized libraries more like meeting places and educational resources, which didn't really align with their teaching. Communities were like, the materials are pretty outdated here. They don't really appeal to us. They're not helping us. So these collections that these librarians were bringing like mentally that would be good from their East Coast kind of haughty New England education, they'd get to these places and be like, oh, this doesn't help all these poor farmers out here at all, or like the native people living here at all. But some librarians, uh, some women librarians at this time were successful in transforming their libraries into cultural centers for these towns. Some would create like traveling libraries to better reach rural areas. Some would work in collaboration with schools to create programming for children. And some would bring like educational materials to the workplace. Some even did horseback book delivery, which is very USA to me. Yeah. And um, around this time, also bookmobiles started to happen. So like the first bookmobile in the United States came about in the early 1900s. And it was a horse-drawn carriage that took stacks of books to rural parts of Maryland. So the librarian who started the program for the Washington County Free Library System, Mary Titcomb, described Bookmobile's programs as being really successful. She said, the book goes to the man, not waiting for the man to come to the book. And they increasingly would become this way for libraries to connect with regular people outside of the physical library building. So these cars, these vehicles would bring books to seniors, school children, and families living kind of out in the middle of nowhere without access to reliable and easy ways to get to the library. And they also tried to do some progressive work too. They also would bring library services to segregated communities throughout the South, as well as to schools uh, on Native American reservations. But remember, these are the types of books that these middle-class white people from New England thought were interesting and important to spread quote-unquote civilization. So 
you know, you can view this as like, oh, look how nice they are for bringing these books to segregated commu black communities in the South and to native people living on reservations. But also you're like, oh, you're just spreading like the gospel of the, the white middle class from New England to these people who've been colonized and harmed by white supremacy. And remember, it was these men who started these programs not too long before this who were like, this is missionary work. Yeah, so, it's a little, little touch of, like, white saviorism. White saviorism, proselytizing, being like, this is American culture, you know? And it's like, oh, that's a slap in the face to the people who built the America that everybody, all these white people are enjoying, right? And also to the people who whose lives were destroyed for these white people yeah, to enjoy it's, it's 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 hard because I feel like our culture is so built on individual actions of service being really exalted, rather than systemic change because as we've discussed a lot like communal action is considered a no-no because of com because the fear the red scare right right yeah anything you, know, you do as a group is communism so these individual women doing this work it's like oh look you've done a nice thing yeah and that leads to this kind of situation where you're like is this a nice thing i don't even know if this is good this all sounds kind of weird and like the continuation of colonization and like cultural genocide to me yeah it, it's like for individual actions like it's hard to quantify but as a systemic whole it it upholds systems of hierarchy, mainly by rich white guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, these these white women librarians, though, they did they did fight a lot of sexism in their own communities, and eventually they were often afforded unique freedoms. They were treated as valued members of the community, which was rare for women at the time. So they did fight some kind of stigma. They did fight sexism, and they were you know, I don't want to use the word pioneer because of the connotations, but in that way, within other white societies, they were kind of pioneers fighting for women's equality. And by 1920, less than 150 years after Benjamin Franklin first donated uh, all those books to the town that wanted the bell, right? And he was like, <laughs> you get books instead. By then, there were more than 3,500 public libraries in the United States. Wow. Yeah. So then early 1900s, 1914 to 1918 comes around and World War One is happening. And also this timeline really makes me realize like World War One did not happen that far after like the gold rush. No, 19, like 19, 1917. I'm going to look up when the gold rush was because I feel like this is important for context. The gold rush It where? was 1848 to 1855 oh. in California. So I'm like, Colorado is a little different. Oh, was it later? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but it's like, you know, this whole idea of, like, going out west to make it and make money and continue the settler expansion from the east coast to the west, this is not that far before World War One. Like, this is happening really late in kind of history as we think of it compared to other places in the world. Like, the United States is a really new country, but this stuff just really hammers it home for me. So... World War One happens and the American Library Association and library branches nationwide begin a campaign to help the United States Armed Service. So a few weeks into the war, the ALA begins this program called A Book for Every Man. And this is aimed at getting books into the hands of American soldiers. And this became part of the ALA's Library War Services Committee, which is wild. It's like part of the militia movement established in 1917 and led by the Librarian of Congress, Herbert Putnam. Wow. I know. He's all over this. So over the course of World War One, the ALA collects millions of dollars in donations and 10 million books and periodicals to distribute to American soldiers. Like, sorry, you're dying. Read something first. It reminds me of, like, USO, where they're where, like, yes. yeah, we're going to get you. It's like, but this is, like, a bullshit. Like, like, when I think about, like, Vietnam and stuff, like, I'm just like, but this is, like, so, it's such a bullshit. Yeah. Like, 
war? Like, what's why? And you're like, oh, but you're getting like. Well, especially World War One, because you're like, oh, it was like from some guy getting assassinated and all the countries having all these ties to each other. So really weird, really weird to me. But whatever, the ALA worked alongside the Carnegie Corporation and they were able to set up 36 camp libraries and get books to soldiers both abroad and at home. And the War Services Committee said in 1917, if we succeed in this emergency in rendering national service, libraries are going to be a national and community force as never before. So they really viewed this as like a self-advancing thing. They're like, the American public's going to love us if we give soldiers books. Yeah. Okay, so. Well, I think, like, like soldiers are a pawn in a lot of political games. Yes. Because, like, if you're like, well, we need to defund the military, they're like, well, you hate soldiers. You hate, you know, and you're just like, we're talking about contractors here, and you bring it back to the soldiers? Yeah, exactly. There's power structures at play here. The soldiers are the pawns. So 1918, World War I ends, and... The American Library Association Committee is like, what are we going to do now to integrate ourselves further into the American hearts and minds? And they decide that they are going to have the committee on work with the foreign born and also aid in the process of Americanization of, ref- of not refugees, of immigrants. Mm. So this gets weird. So from 1880 to 1920, more than 20 million immigrants arrived in the United States. And in response to this, public libraries started this foreign language collection campaign that would reflect like the needs of these new groups coming in to the country, which sounds really cool. You're like, we're going to serve you where you are. You speak Polish, we're going to get a bunch of books in Polish. So it was established in 1918, this American Library Association's Committee on Work with the Foreign Born, and they published a series of guidebooks for adapting collections to meet the needs of these new immigrants. And they started with The Polish Immigrant and His Reading in 1924, and then also had German, Greek, and Italian volumes. And the emphasis of these guides was to expand your collections to attract immigrants to the libraries, support their reading interests, and give librarians tips about serving people from other cultural backgrounds, which sounds great. That sounds so good. What could be wrong with that? But the main goal was just to Americanize the immigrant. That was literally what the goal was. And it actually wasn't benevolent. It was kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's like, we'll lure them in with texts that they'll like. And then we'll force them to completely get rid of their culture in its entirety and assimilate into the American way of life. Which translated into the white New England dude's idea of the American way of life. Right. Which to me is wearing a top hat. (laughs) (laughs) Did they wear top hats in 1924? They might. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's like the, it's like the 1920s is like the flapper movements maybe happening. I think there could be top hats. I think in my mind, when rich people went to like, like in America or like, yeah. Western society. Want to civilize the poors. Um, in my mind, they just want to make everyone wear um, either butler or maid's uniforms. Oh, did to serve them. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Like, in my mind, I'm like, they want everyone to dress like butlers. Yeah, maybe. With so, a top hat. <laughs> with a top hat. So this process was called the Americanization Movement. And it began in response to European immigration and World War One, And it reached its height around 1921, when more than 30 states and hundreds of cities adopted these Americanization measures to make the immigrants not be so immigranty, right? Problem, problematic. So some of this legislation provided for like positive support measures, like we're gonna give you night classes in English so that you can speak to more people while you're here, that's cool. But other legislation was a lot more punitive. Like they prohibited immigrants um, who hadn't been neutralized from holding certain jobs or they banned foreign languages in public settings. So, and the library was really active 
in helping this Americanization movement. Public libraries, key partners in this, and the Immigration Act of 1917 was a response to increasing native-born anxiety over the immigrants coming. And this banned illiterate immigrants over the age of 16, as well as most Asian immigrants, entry to the United States. And this stayed in place until 1952. Whoa. Yeah, so this is part of the Americanization movement that the libraries are like, Yes, we're into this. And because of this legislation, public library Americanization activities would often include adult education trainings to prepare immigrants for citizenship and, like, give literacy tests and things like that. So on one hand, you're like, it's kind of helpful, but it's also kind of, like, really just destroying people's culture and being really shitty to immigrants. I don't know. It's very weird. Um, And it just makes me think, like, like, this is not the melting pot thing that we're taught in school. Like, when we were growing up, we're like, America's the melting pot of different cultures. But what we're really seeing happening is people are getting here and America is like, destroy your culture, forget your culture, become like us, the white native, now quote unquote native born people of the United States, obviously not actually native. And the libraries are like, we're going to help you destroy your culture and become more like us, assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. So in addition to helping immigrants speak and read and write in English, which, you know, is helpful. Programs also help them understand American history and participate in patriotic activities. And also to learn middle and upper class American cultural norms, like rules for hosting guests and table manners. So they were really trying to spread that upper class, middle class, white New England guy's definition of civilization, like the people who helped found the American library system said they wanted to do all those years before. God forbid we use the wrong fork. Exactly. I think that, I think that, a natural disaster might hit if we use the salad fork for the first appetizer. It's totally true. And some libraries that gave this etiquette training, etiquette training uh, to immigrant women also would lend them place settings so they could host dinner parties in the proper way, uh, even if they couldn't afford the equipment. They're like, you will need to host a dinner party and know all of this to be a proper American. We'll just lend you the things you can't afford. So you're like, that's kind of nice, I guess. But like, do I really have to host the dinner party? So throughout the 1920s, librarians began to view the Americanization process as part of, like, just adult education on the whole. And there used to be, like, distinctly separate goals of American public libraries to educate the general populace and to Americanize immigrants, and they just kind of merged them into one. And lots of public libraries around this time understood their mission as building a literate citizenry composed of both foreign and native-born Americans who were imbued mostly with the spirit of patriotism. So this was hardcore propagandizing at the time. And the ALA promoted the creation of adult education programming in the form of literacy classes and discussion groups. And often these discussion groups would be about patron shared American heritage. And they would also, yes, talk about imagined communist threats during the Cold War. And all of this in the context of how great traditional values in the United States were like democracy. Which, side note, we have to do a whole episode about the myth of American democracy one day in the future. But whatever. So the libraries... We're a republic, (laughs) not a democracy, as the Republicans like to say. So, you know, these library centers were just teaching immigrants American anti-communist propaganda. And it was just, like, total, like, re-education camp vibes, basically. So beginning in the 1930s, though, Pura Belpri, who was New York City's first Puerto Rican librarian, actually transformed the New York Public Library's 115th Street branch into a vibrant community center for newly arrived Puerto Rican immigrants by purchasing Spanish language books, instituting bilingual story hours, and offering programs on traditional holidays. 
And this was kind of different than what a lot of these white-led libraries were doing. And this is where we really start to see the importance of like intersectionality in the library system. Like you have somebody who's a Puerto Rican librarian who's like, oh, I actually know how to appeal to Puerto Rican immigrants. And Belpre ended up modeling uh, to other public libraries ways to serve the needs of Spanish speaking patrons and advocate for the importance of their inclusion in public library strategies rather than just trying to like beat their culture out of them with a book. And I think this is really interesting because this is like a success story. So you have some weird shit happening, but you also have like, well, that's pretty good. You know, people who are like, no, I actually want to speak to immigrants and provide a resource for my community. And if my community is is not a bunch of white people, I want to provide resources for them too. You know what I was just thinking about? That movie, Party Girl. Oh yeah. Library movie. Posey. It yes. is a library movie. Yes. And I think they talk, I mean, there's some, there's some problematic parts in the movie. You know, yes. it is a nineties movie. Yes. But, um, I think they like actually talk about this in the movie. I could be wrong. I should rewatch this, honestly. Um, great movie uh, in the Criterion collection. It's though. really good. And the outfits are stellar. The outfits are the best part about the movie. Yeah. You could watch the movie for the outfits alone, but it is a library movie. So it might be supplemental recommended material for this episode. <laughs> Um, okay, so all this is kind of going on through the 1920s, and then, you know, we get to the 1930s, and the Depression hits. Ugh. All of Bummer. the budgets for libraries across the United States are slashed. Um, and just people really don't have access to libraries at all at this time. Like, at one ALA council meeting in May of 1936, it was estimated that one-third of Americans were without reasonable public library access. And this is where the Works Progress Administration's library projects came in. And they served 45 states, and they employed a little over 14,000 people, some of whom were experienced librarians who had been out of their jobs when these budgets were slashed, and they were trying to put them back to work. So these projects would have assignments like, okay, book cataloging, repairing books, helping to save community libraries, thousands of dollars. And by February of 1938, the WPA reconditioned books uh, totaled close to 30 million, which also included a project in Louisiana that repaired books in Braille for people who were vision impaired. Oh, wow. So there was some good stuff going on here. Uh, the WPA also had a library extension program that funded and built about 200 new libraries, more than 3,400 new reading rooms, and 5,800 traveling libraries. And the traveling libraries, like those like horse-drawn carriage libraries and bookmobiles before, helped reach the most remote communities in the United States in unique ways. Like in Mississippi, a WPA librarian used a houseboat to distribute books to communities along the Yazoo River because they weren't connected to state highways. Uh, there was a pack horse librarian in Kentucky. Uh, it was a program, sorry, not just one librarian. But it employed over 200 workers and it sent librarians on horseback to rural mountain communities and they would travel on like creeks and cliffs and part of the way sometimes by foot or rowboat. And it connected about 100,000 residents in remote parts of eastern Kentucky with reading materials. Wow. Yeah. Now, as this is all going on, it's also important to remember that segregation was super rampant during this time, right? So in 1896, the Supreme Court had upheld the separate but equal uh, kind of idea in Plessy versus Ferguson, which said there's going to be different places for black Americans, different schools, different libraries, and they're going to be separate from the white ones, but they're going to be just as good, we promise. Uh, and spoiler alert, they were nowhere near just as good. They were underfunded and they were really inferior and they were not, they were not nice. It was really a disservice to the black community. So the library system in the United States was segregated by race until 1963. So while all this is happening, this is happening in the context of segregation. And as public facilities, the earliest public libraries in Southern states, yes, excluded black Americans by law. 
So there's this guy, Ronald McNair. He's a black astrophysicist. And he spent most of his life in, like, different kind of forms of resistance. So he was always struggling against systemic oppression of black people. He grew up, you know, a black man in late Jim Crow era South Carolina. When he was around eight years old, he actually went to the local whites-only public library in Lake City, which was a small town. And he was like, oh, I'm going to get some books about math and science. And he went in line to check out his books. And this old librarian, you know, white lady, is like, this library, not for coloreds you know bad word he, that's what that's what they told him and he said well I want to check out these books and she said young man if you don't leave this library right now I am going to call the police so he sat on the counter and said okay I'll wait right so this is kind of what black Americans are encountering when they go into the libraries headed by these white women it's like these white women don't exist in a vacuum they are upholding standards of white supremacy in these libraries and when Andrew Carnegie funded the construction of a new white-only public library in Atlanta in 1902, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, who's a famous scholar, communist black activist, and a professor then at the Atlanta University, uh, he was like, this is such an injustice. This is not a public facility if it refuses service to a third of Atlanta's population who is black. So some of the first facilities for black Americans were school libraries in Memphis, Tennessee, like 1903, Galveston, Texas, 1904, and they did open their doors to serve a broader public. Um, other early libraries, like in Lexington, Kentucky, and Jacksonville, Florida, opened as segregated reading rooms for black people within white libraries. And some provided minimal service to black communities via those bookmobiles we talked about. Or there'd be like a single day every week for black people to visit the local library when it was closed to white patrons. Of the freestanding public libraries for black Americans, only a few were actually autonomous. Like services for black Americans remained completely absent in many areas of the United States in the early kind of 20th century. So in 1905, Louisville, Kentucky did open the first free public library for black American readers and it was staffed and operated entirely by black Americans. That was pretty major. And nine years later in 1914, a Carnegie library was finally founded by the local Colored Library Association um, because we all know Carnegie was a PR guy, if nothing else, and having Dubois be like, this library is garbage, black people can't go here. He responded to that. He was like, oh, I'm going to do a library for black Americans now. Atlanta's first library branch for black Americans, though, wouldn't open until 1921. So from 1921, though, until the branch closed in 1959, many black women librarians managed the branch and its educational community programming. And this included Annie L. McFeeters, who was responsible for the development of the special non-circulating Negro history collection and served Atlanta's uh, African-American libraries from 1934 until her retirement until 1966. So we do see some black women emerging, taking the helm and really helping to run these black spaces for the black community, which is good. The Auburn branch was a community center for black Americans located in the heart of its political and cultural district. And, um, you know, lots of really notable political leaders like John Wesley Dobbs went to this branch. And the women who ran the library uh, also were pretty active in civil and political matters outside of its walls just within the city. But, you know, we can think about segregation as being something that only happened in the South, but this isn't the reality of how racism and white supremacy have acted in the United States ever. Like anti-blackness at public libraries happened in the North too. Like in a 1934 newspaper article from the Baltimore Afro-American, librarian Augusta Baker said um, the director of the Enoch Pratt Free Library told her they weren't interested in hiring black people. Their article also mentioned the library's separate bathrooms for what they called colored people. And uh, that was installed because there were complaints from white library users. 
So, you know, this is happening in the north, right? Not in the south where segregation is happening. Also, historian Cynthia R. Greenlee documented a time in 1945 when New Jersey resident and NAACP member Violet Wallach complained to her local New Jersey chapter about separate smaller reading rooms for Black people at her local library. The NAACP opened an investigation and library treasurer Harriet Trumaine defended the policy, saying, we don't believe in social equity for Negroes. We don't want our white children associating with them on the same level. The Negroes are a different race. They should be proud of it, but keep it to themselves. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so this is happening in New Jersey, pretty far from the South. And also, the ALA, the Chicago-based nonprofit established to support libraries around the country, had a questionable track record when it came to advocating for equal access to libraries during this time. Uh, they hosted their 1936 annual conference in Richmond, Virginia, right? Black attendees were forced to be segregated. And the LA, ALA passed a rule later that they would never go to a conference in a segregated city again. Over the coming decades, though, there was hardly any institutional support granted to activists attempting to desegregate those local libraries. They basically were like, fend for yourselves, we're sticking to the North. You know, so still it's true there were fewer resources available for Black Americans living in the South, probably even though Black Americans living in the North struggled with racism and anti-Blackness the same. By 1946, just under one-third of the public library systems in the U.S. South reported some form of service to Black Americans. So that's only 188 out of 597. And that made library services available to only 34% of the black population in those states. In 1948, black activist and librarian Jean Blackwell Hudson was appointed the acting curator of the Division of Negro Literature, History, and Prints at the 135th Street County Cullen Branch of the New York Public Library. And over the next 32 years, she would lead the growth of the collection and the development of the Schomburg Collection for Research in Black Culture, which is now like an international research institution, a leader in its field. So we do see some wins coming out when we see black librarians in libraries. Like that's as simple as it is. When you have white librarians in these spaces, they're telling you, we don't want equality with black people. And when you have black people there, they're actually cultivating collections that speak to the community and that are a true resource that everybody can kind of participate in and look at and take pride in. Also, the Atlanta Fulton Public Library System formally desegregated in 1959, finally, but other locations in the South were slower to catch up, and they actually required the Supreme Court's kind of federal legislations to forcefully desegregate them. After careful planning, there were like nine members of the local NAACP Youth Council, uh, who were later called the Tougaloo Nine, who attempted to use the white-only Jackson, Mississippi Public Library on March 27, 1961. Uh, they refused to leave when they were asked to, and they were arrested and jailed for disturbing the peace, and this was a calculated protest maneuver. In 1962, similar student protests happened at local libraries in Albany, Georgia. In Amston, Alabama, on September 15th, 1963, two black ministers were attacked by a white mob as they attempted to integrate the Amston Public Library. And in total, it took three federal rulings to formally desegregate the United States, including library systems, right? We had the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education, where the U.S. Supreme Court overturned separate but equal in a ruling about segregated schools. We had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which specifically outlawed discrimination in public accommodations, like libraries. And we had the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which gave black Americans full access to the vote, which granted them power over local government, and also subsequently, the public libraries, right? So... Around 1950, you know this little section I like to call Libraries Go Woke? Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> Around this time, the ALA is finally like, uh, you know what? Maybe we should take a stance on this, like, censorship that we're experiencing, right? A lot of people are telling us what books are safe to have people read and what aren't. And they decide 
uh, to break from its past as just an arm of the wealthy capitalist elite spreading uh, pro-capitalist, pro-America propaganda to the masses. And they decide that instead they're going to be like, you know what? We don't fuck with censorship. We hate it. So the Freedom to Read statement came about in 1953, and this was supported by the LA and other booksellers and book publishers. You know, now to this day, public libraries do theoretically play an active role in collecting and supporting the reading of banned books. The ALA, for example, participates in Banned Books Week, which highlights commonly contested books and is like, you guys should read these books. The Library Services Act of 1956 had an emphasis on rural library development, and that helped revive the bookmobile. And it added 5 million books and materials to rural libraries and put 200 new bookmobiles on the road. And the combined effort meant that lots of county and regional libraries uh, upped book circulation by more than 40%. And in 1962, the Library Services and Construction Act was passed, which helped fund new library spaces for what they called underserved communities, right? So poor and marginalized people. So this is kind of the 1950s to the 1960s. I think of that as the libraries going woke. <laughs> but that gets us to today, right? Public libraries today. So... Today, there are more than 7,500 branch libraries in the United States and slightly more central public library buildings. And they do lend books, but they also let you do a lot of other things like access movie, music, household tools, uh, you know, whatever you kind of want. They probably have. In Sweden, you can even like check out art to have in your home. You just leave a deposit. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, and I think the libraries today have this goal where they're like, we're going to be an inclusive community center. We're going to be a third space for all people, right? And one of their goals they talk about is like fighting back against inequality. Like the ALA today finds that the people most likely to challenge the availability of books and patrons within library spaces are parents. Like 39% of challenges to reading material available in libraries are made by parents who are objecting overwhelmingly to things that they think are sexually explicit usually just means things that are gay. They also tend to call it obscene. Uh, the parents are also upset about things that they think feature critical race theory. They're complaining about things that are woke. They're complaining about things that are anti-police. And they're saying that this stuff is indoctrinating kids. And these words are actually the most common words that show up in parent complaints about materials. Oh, it's all a coordinated effort. Like, it's all like people being, it's like the right being like, this is what we're going to go after because people are like fanatic, like people, like, we got, we're, and you know how, like, they use service members to, like, yeah. get people, they use children. And I'm yes. like, it's wild because I feel like a lot of these people who are just like, my kids can't read this, blah, blah, blah. It's like, your kids are not, I'm sorry, your kids are not going to talk to you when you're, when they're adults. <laughs> no, no. And just 1% of objections about materials are from kids themselves. And realistically, those are probably parents telling them to complain. Oh, for sure. I... I feel like, yeah, I would have never complained about a book at the school. I think to me, the only thing I would have been like, this book was a little bit scary. Yeah, that's but, what you think of as a kid. And to me, the scary books were those uh, those scary stories with the freaky drawings in them. Goosebumps? No, no, no. The ones that had the really scary like line art drawings in them. And they were all like ghost stories. Oh, I don't remember these. Oh my god, I read this in my library and I was like, these are freaky. And all my friends were like, I can't read those ones. Yeah, but all to me, it's like also like sometimes when you're a kid, you you're gonna discover scary stuff, yeah. you know, and like well, usually they're not the, objecting to scary stuff. They're yeah, objecting. but that's the only thing I could think of a kid being like, this yeah. was a little scary. Like that's the 
And then someone would be like, oh, well, you know, don't read any more of those books. And they'd be like, okay. Right. So if a kid is saying something like, this book is indoctrinating me to be a woke. Um, Anti-police gay <laughs> who, who engages in critical race theory. And wants to marry a <laughs> penguin and, and the litter box. I'm sorry. I saw this shirt online that says that said uh moms against uh child cats. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or something. That like- was a big one where the conservatives had convinced each other that there were litter boxes in classrooms. Oh, like I def like for for ch- kids who identified as cats, they like didn't understand and they were like that, this that's, is not re- like, do no, you- that's not real. Like you And real. they're like Okay, like, okay, who is this? Na- name the kid. Name what? And it's always like, well, my cousin's kid went to school with My someone. cousin's dentist friend's yeah. kid's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's always like 16, like, laws of separation. Yeah. And most of these objections that the libraries are getting, 44% happen in school libraries, right? But 37% happen in public libraries as well. And like in 2021, the top 10 most challenged books by people complaining about books were Gender Queer by Maya Kababe, Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, uh, Out of Darkness by Ashley Hope Perez, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, me and Earl and the Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, This Book is Gay by Juno Dawson, and Beyond Magenta by Susan Cooklin. And the ALA put them on a list, actually, to encourage people to read them because they got so many complaints about them. They have a whole campaign to read banned books and fight censorship in order to share stories from marginalized communities and give those traditionally perceived as, like, voiceless uh, a voice at the libraries. And on top of trying to, you know, be an inclusive experience for people, libraries are also today aiming to act like a community resource center. Like, after uh, Hurricane Ike in 2008, the Houston Public Library mobilized to start offering emergency aid. Uh, They helped people work on FEMA aid paperwork. They served as a public access point for distribution of food and water. And they offered childcare services, uh, kind of as a public access point, also serving for distribution of food and water. Oh, I said that part already, sorry. But yeah, they uh, did these childcare services, and they were like a safe space for families, kind of. So during this time, you know, they were like, we're going to serve the community. And they did that far after other aid organizations left Houston. In their 2022 year review on the state of American libraries, the ALA said that in 2021, libraries found themselves at the center of a culture war as conservative groups led a historic effort to ban and challenge materials that address racism, gender, politics, and sexual identity. These groups sought to pull books from school and public library shelves that share the stories of people who are gay, Uh, trans, black, indigenous, people of color, immigrants, refugees. But we know that banning books won't make these realities and lived experiences disappear, nor will it erase our nation's struggles to realize true equity, diversity, and inclusion. That's why the work of libraries is more essential than ever. Books reach across boundaries and build connections between readers. Reading, especially books that extend beyond our own experiences, expands our worldview. Censorship, on the other hand, divides us and creates barriers. So you can see the stated goal of the ALA is like, no, 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 like, these people, black people, gay people, native people, immigrants, refugees, they exist in our societies and we're here to serve our communities where these people are. Uh, the ALA also had a piece in their year-end review that centered equity, diversity, and inclusion where they discussed centering BIPOC voices in librarianship. They discussed diversifying the workforce in libraries and diversifying their collections. They also had an entire section about fighting disinformation about COVID-19, boosting vaccination rates, and talking about how during uh 
COVID-19 lockdowns, the libraries handed out free COVID tests when it was pretty hard to get a hold of them and allowed healthcare workers to vaccinate people in their communities at the libraries. Like in January, 2021, healthcare workers were vaccinating up to 150 people per day at the Schenectady County Library in New York. And there's also this whole other thing about third places, right? So like according to Ray Oldenburg in The Great Good Place in 1989, a person needs three different places uh, that are important, like a home space, a workspace, and a third undefined place. And Raquel Conclaves Castro talked about this in an article in Medium. Uh, home shall bring relax, comfort, and predicted environment, while in work a person must be motivated, productive, and fulfilled. A third place, on other hands, is an escape place, a relief from stress and non-stopping life. It provides a loose and interactive structure. It constitutes a place where people actually feel like equals without any kind of hierarchy, a place that does not simply reduce people into customers. And libraries have long been touted as the ideal third place. Like Castro says, libraries provide low stress status, anti-hierarchical situation, interactive and sociable situations in low levels, but quite possible. And also it has a structure where every different kind of person may fit and feel comfortable. Also, the Washington Post recently ran a piece declaring that the world was in the midst of a new golden age of libraries. Like one just uh, opened in Oslo, which won the Public Library of the Year Award in 2021, that had what the article called stunning reading rooms, a cinema, a 200-seat auditorium, cafes, recording studios, rehearsal spaces, and game rooms. There's also the recently expanded uh, Fayetteville Public Library in Arkansas that offered an art and movement room, an event center, and a teaching kitchen, among other things. There's a lot of talk about these third spaces, right? Because these are public places that are supposed to increase communal ties by hosting just like kind of informal, regular gatherings of individuals beyond work and home. And libraries are really aiming to be that. And that's important because third places are important, right? Like new research shows that third places help cushion the effects of the pandemic across a range of measures like personal bankruptcies, mental health outcomes, coronavirus infections, and deaths. It's also been theorized that third places play a powerful role in anchoring and sustaining community. Uh, new research shows, though, you know, which types of third places do the most good in creating social capital and community strength. And what they found is that what makes a difference in terms of people feeling locally connected is just having third spaces available nearby. Like 56% of Americans have a third space that they visit regularly in their local communities. And out of those people, almost two thirds, 64%, say they generally recognize other people from their community who go there. When they go, they're like, oh yeah, I'm engaging with other people. These are people who don't exist in my home or at my workplace. And these cases where Americans have this like third place that they regularly go to and recognize people, 68% say they feel close to their neighbors in their neighborhoods compared to just 43% of people who lack third spaces. So in 2021, sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, who's the author of the best-selling book, uh, Palaces for the People, which is sometimes what libraries have been called, how social infrastructure can help fight inequality, polarization, and the decline of civic life. He thanked librarians for their work and said, we need our public libraries now more than ever. He said, there is no better social infrastructure that expresses who we are and what we want to be than the library. He called them the best exemplars of our collective life. And this all sounds awesome, right? This sounds great. This sounds like, yeah, I love the library. The library is great. But the reality of the library is not all of these lofty goals and ambitions that the ALA is putting out in the press releases as though it's actually happening. Like the reality of the library is that they're overwhelmingly white and they're not actually helping communities much. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh... There's a lot of ways this manifests. 
I mean, you worked in a library. You probably saw a little of this. Well, this was college library. So, mm, that's a little you know, dark. and this was like pre-smartphone. So, like, that, it's funny because, like, I'm at the age now where I remember the, the there was pre-iPhone pre and post. Yeah, no, it's true. So, pre-iPhone, there were a lot of people in the library. Right, but they were kids who were getting a college education, which yeah. also limits it to a specific type of person, right? Yeah. From a specific I mean, background. I went to the Denver Public Library a lot and it you know, it it seemed like there was a certain type of person the library was meant for and then there was a certain type of person that frequented the library that was uh, you know, looked down upon, which was mainly probably people who were in the library all day cuz they didn't have anywhere else to go. Yes. So despite these lofty goals of being public spaces um, that are so inclusive and open to everybody, the libraries are still mired by the same things that the middle-class white women who tend to lead them are. Good intentions and a lot of blind spots. Mm -hmm. This is kind of what it means to be a white woman in the United States trying to quote-unquote do good, right? It's like it borders on that kind of white savior complex. It centers the needs of like white women as the people doing good rather than the actual needs of communities often. And we have some examples of this. Like in an attempt to make amends for adherence to those Jim Crow policies back during segregation, the ALA in 2018 released a resolution at the annual conference in New Orleans on behalf of all libraries titled An Apology for Segregated Libraries. As black writer Megan Summers says though, these concessions are corroded by a lack of widespread praxis to back them up. So she says the ALA Code of Ethics, a foundational text for the contemporary library worker, reads more like a public relations tool than a set of applied guidelines when compared to recent annals from the library history. Reading the ALA end year report, it does sound like PR, really, like a bid to get more funding, like touting how great they are rather than acknowledging the reality of what the library is doing. And this is like one main issue with capitalism on the whole, like they're competing for funding. They have to make it sound like everything they're doing is awesome. So there's this quote from the ALA Code of Ethics that Megan Summers references that says, we provide the highest level of service to all library users through appropriate and useful organized resources, equitable service policies, equitable access, and accurate, unbiased, and courteous responses to all requests. Summers pushes back on this, though, saying many libraries lack services and collection materials for people with disabilities and non-native English speakers, as well as staff actively invested in inclusive practices. Today, the majority of public librarians are white and only a minority are black. Add to this the present statistic that a larger portion of black and Hispanic adults have never visited a public library compared to the white counterparts, and the reality of equitable access differs from the declaration above. Uh, and... Her findings at this time were that 77% of public librarians were white and only 7% were black. And that's in a place where black Americans are between 13 to 14% of the U.S. population. So really disproportionately uh, underrepresented. That Greenville, South Carolina library where black activists clashed with police in an effort to desegregate their local library, it's the same one where in 2012 the library voted to remove Alan Moore's graphic novel a neonomicon from its collection after a mom complained about its content. So despite their lofty claims about fighting censorship and encouraging people to read banned books, these public libraries don't always do that. And that happened to be the only copy of the book available in the entire state at the time, which raised questions about censorship. As Summers points out, most of the books banned from libraries go unreported, but trends show that the most likely to be challenged deal with racial, sexual, or mental health issues. Oh, I'm for sure. Meanwhile, the ALA Bill of Rights was altered to allow hate groups to book 
public meeting spaces in libraries. But no drag queens! Yeah, and a news release, hate groups like the KKK were equated to religious or partisan political groups, and there were also legal concerns cited, and only after they received a lot of criticism from libraries, you know, and related organizations, did the ALA decide to conduct an online poll where council members voted overwhelmingly to rescind this policy and be like, please don't let the KKK host meetings here. As Summers asks, if at their core, libraries provide free knowledge to their communities, how can they maintain their egalitarian spirit when information and services have become increasingly commodified and politicized? As a function of a country founded and developed by entrepreneurial white men who supported degrees of subjugation for everyone else, they have never been as democratic as they insist. She says, enmeshed in various levels of local, state, and federal government, public libraries often follow a slow bureaucratic trajectory towards progress mimicked by their allied organizations. Appointed boards removed from the day-to-day -day operations of the facilities and the people they oversee make decisions alongside a small number of administrators that impact the external capabilities of their libraries. In other words, under free market capitalism based on corporate models of competition and privatization, public libraries have structured themselves as a hierarchical business to preserve their relevancy in a financially combative society. Pervasive economic disparities create circumstances wherein some cities have more access to services than others. In some cases, libraries exist independently from local government and must rely on alternative funding sources. This also means that in a country where white supremacist beliefs have been normalized to justify our history of forced enslavement, native eradication, and xenophobic traditions, libraries have played a role in perpetuating injustices affecting non-white people in America to this day. So, you know, a lot of people of color are like, I don't feel like this library is actually serving my community. And on top of that, that whole thing about third spaces, well, library use is actually on the decline, meaning they aren't serving the community as a third space that they're intending either. And it's such a bummer, but the people who are most willing to point this out are actually conservatives. It seems that the American liberal wants to continue to live in this kind of fantasy that libraries are fulfilling needs that they simply aren't. Progressives are pointing out point blank that these spaces are too white to be able to accurately fill that need for communities. And conservatives are the ones showing the data that unfortunately spending money on libraries seems to be a waste. So this is like a particular brand of kind of NPR middle-class college educated white woman telling us that libraries are a utopia, but they're not really paying attention to the very real feedback that they're getting from those underserved communities they pride themselves on helping, who are saying, I don't know who you're doing this for, but it's not actually helping us. And the fact that conservatives are winning when they point this out is just so embarrassing. Well, it is kind of like libraries are set up to fail because basically, because we are in a society that views all government services, all social services as being either communist or for the weak willed. Or a tool of propaganda to spread pro-white American supremacy kind of ideas. But the thing is, it's like for order for a society to function, you must have social services. So basically what these rich people are doing by creating like libraries and stuff is they're kind of doing the thing that like, you know, going back to ancient times, uh, the dole, you have to give money to the poor people so they don't riot and kill you. And I think that they, not that that's happening now, but it, to me, it's just like, the thing is, is like there reaches a certain point of social disintegration where we all will snap. And yeah. so like, to me, it's like, we don't like the rich people in charge are like, we don't want people snapping, so we have to create a veneer of sociality without actually creating sociality because if we had that, people might come together and be like, 
hmm, the system really isn't working out so well for us, is it? You know, but like libraries, they they portray a veneer of like, oh, well, we we have a great, you know, liberal society. We have libraries. You can check out power tools. But, you know, like you can, you know, I think that's actually great. You can check I out power tools. I think it's really cool. You can check no, out power tools. No, but like tools, to me, yeah. it's like, but the thing is, it's like, but then you don't even think about, well, why should we have to check those out? Why can't anyone just have access to anything they need at any time when that's absolutely possible? Right. It's like the libraries we have today are existing within a system of capitalism and white supremacy, and they're subject to the same exact issues that capitalism, white supremacy, like, kind of affect everything. It all comes down to the I'm, same thing. I'm not saying that libraries are bad per se. I'm saying that we use libraries as this band-aid for a system that is really not serving anybody. Right. So, you know, the things that are pointed out when people are like, are libraries actually in this third space? Are they doing any of this good? You know, the people point out that most Americans do not visit their local libraries regularly. Uh, They are not, therefore, the thriving and central element of local community building that librarians are often telling us they are. Like, there's been a 31% decline in public library building use between 2000 and 2018, and it has nothing to do with funding because revenue has actually increased in lots of places and most years since 2012. Um, There's also a new national survey from the Survey Center on American Life, which explored American communities, and they said that libraries based on their findings, are not significant to the lives of most Americans whatsoever. Only 7% of Americans visit libraries weekly. 22% report visiting libraries at least once or twice a month, which isn't, you know, a huge section of the population. It's almost one in four people. But almost 6 in 10 Americans report they seldom or never visit their local public library. And 32% say they absolutely never do. And that brings to question the purported centrality, right, of these spaces. And it's embarrassing when this, like, center-right professor, which, come on, the center in the United States is so right, so this guy might as well be far-right. Samuel J. Abrams says, consider the newly renovated Stavros Nyarkos Foundation Library on Fifth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. This library is indeed library is indeed breezy and open while offering ample places to read, along with a business center, a podcasting studio, a floor dedicated to children and teens, and a rooftop terrace. However, this is not a community library. While the library does offer classes and spaces to gather and learn for the guests of all ages, its location is not within a residential area whatsoever, and the library does not serve any neighborhood or community, like many other almost 100 libraries that are far less resourced. And I hate that this guy has a point. I don't want this guy to have a point. Well, to me, it's like also like having worked in a library, like I know exactly why people don't visit the bureaucracy. Yeah. Like even uh, honestly, it... Me signing up for an e-library card to get all the free shit, which I love. I highly recommend doing it. Um, I still couldn't get one of our coworkers to go out because we couldn't figure out the fucking process. Oh, you know, I actually signed up today after doing this episode and I signed up for the county library and the city library and the county sign up was really easy, but the city one was really difficult. The city one. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's bureaucratic. You, you know, like. As someone with ADHD, like I, it's hard for me to get to do steps and the library purposefully, you always have to have a lot of steps. And I, you know, I think it's a part of American government where bureaucracy is purposefully created to discourage access, whether it's intentional or not. I mean, I think it's intentional from our society, like history perspective, but then I think like 
some people, you know, the road to hell is paved with gold where they're like, we need all these processes, you know, maybe because they're like, I need to think that people are, I'm doing my job or they think right. having steps will create a process it's that like is a system better. that's not chaotic yeah yeah where sometimes you know simpler is better yeah so to me there's a lot of bureaucracy there's a lot of probably personality like any workplace but this is supposed to be a place where literally everybody in the community is welcome so yeah there's gonna there's also yeah a ton of bureaucracy <laughs> yeah so also the thing about libraries is that, you know that thing about third spaces? Only 3% of Americans say that their local third space is a library. That's the same percent as a gym and lower than a corner store or bodega. Yeah, I would say I probably spend more time at the corner store than I do at a library. I'm at that corner store all the time. So this means that bodegas are better at meeting the needs of their communities than libraries currently are. And that's like a problem. And this like really conservative magazine, National Review, actually slammed that sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, who said libraries are the best exemplars of our collective life by saying, if libraries are the best exemplars of our collective life, it's no wonder that so many Americans are managing an epidemic of loneliness, a friendship recession, and ongoing civic decline. And I'm like, why is this like conservative publication so fucking spot on and right? Like, I hate this. So you know, there's problems. There's problems with the American library system. They're talking about how much good they're doing, but when we actually look at the numbers, people just aren't going. And this isn't just something that conservative people are saying or progressive people are saying, because I see librarians, usually young librarians, optimistic librarians on social media, on TikTok all the time, basically begging people to come to the local library, right? And there's just this huge disconnect between what the libraries are offering, what they're trying to do, and how it's being received by the community. I think there's a way to fix the problem, though. And lots of experts do think there's a way to fix the problem. So it's not an entirely sad thing. You know, despite the library's current failure to offer an inclusive experience that gives marginalized people voices like it wants to, and also its failure to provide the community with a third space that brings them together like it desperately wants to, there is potential here. Like, just because we're failing to do it now doesn't mean we can't do it in the future. People don't go to their libraries but they want to. Like, we like libraries as a concept. They're just not working right now. 65% of Americans over the age of 16 say that closing their local public library would have a major impact on their community. And that's wild because we know only 7% of people regularly go to the library. So this just kind of shows there's like a disconnect between how we mythologize libraries and think about them, what we want them to be, and what they actually are. But there's potential in that, right? The library could be everything it wants to be and claims it already is, which is weird. And we want that too, if only something changed. So what needs to change? Well, the main thing people say is we really need to tackle the lack of diversity in library staffing. Like one account found that 85% of librarians in the United States are white. Uh, only 59.3% of the country is white, for example. And when we look at data showing the decline in library use, people on the lower end of the socioeconomic range, people with less education and lower household incomes, the people who should be benefiting the most from a library because it's kind of a stand-in for not having a safety net or social services, those are the people who are actually reporting a larger than average decline in attendance. And rural Americans and black Americans also have greater than average declines in attendance. So how can the library serve the needs of the community if it's not an accurate representation of that community? Like, how do you know what your community needs if you are overwhelmingly not representing it? 
So Curtis Kendrick and Iana G. Hilbert asked these same questions in a piece titled Assessing the Racial Diversity of Librarians. They're librarians, they're talking about this, and they say between 500 to 1,100 additional Black and Indigenous people of color students would need to graduate from Masters of Library Science programs every year for the next 10 years if the profession is to become 25% BIPOC. Is that feasible? And is the profession even attractive to those students? So Kendrick says the probability of graduating an additional 500 to 1100 librarians of color a year for the next 10 years is so low. It's clear that the extent of our solutions do not scale to the magnitude of the problem. Despite decades of good intentions and interventions, we are not on a path to meaningful acceleration in the number of librarians of color relative to their white peers. This recognition is not a call to stop any of the programs currently in place, rather a reality check to advocate for new approaches to a perennial problem. He says the best thing we could do is probably remove getting a master's in library science as a requirement to being a librarian. Oh my god, I was just about to say that. No, like, to me, I was doing a librarian's job as a teenager. Right. A 19-year-old. And, you like, know, when you have this requirement where you have to get a master's degree, it suppresses a lot of people of color's access to this line of work because master degrees take a long time to get, they're really expensive, and a byproduct of systemic racism is that families of color have overall less wealth to draw from to support kids getting this and type of education. Honestly, if you know how to organize a spreadsheet, like... It will get you very, like, I think that people can learn librarianship on the job. Like, I'm not dissing anyone who goes to library school. There's a lot of stuff, cool no, stuff you can cool. learn. Like, if you get your master's degree, that's even cooler because you know a lot of shit. But I'm just saying, on a practical level, librarianship can be a trade. Yeah. In my opinion, in my experience. He himself <laughs> is a black librarian, Kendrick, with an MLS. And he says that the MLS is existing as a gatekeeper to the profession for people who aren't upper class and middle class college educated white people. Yeah, I just happened to, yeah, like, I don't know how I even landed the job in the library, but like I was doing library stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> when we look at this, we're like, well, why is it important to have people working at libraries who aren't white? And there's a lot of reasons. Like, if your library is staffed entirely by middle-class white women, which they overwhelmingly are, they are only going to know how to create a space that appeals to other middle-class white women, which isn't bad. It's just all you know how to do. And most middle-class white women don't need a library. They can afford to buy books if they want or have their own supplies if they want and have access to things like the internet at home. In a literature review on Latino students in the academic library, Marta Bladek asserted that in order to implement changes that would effectively improve the library experience for Latino students, it is crucial to start by acknowledging that longtime services do not adequately meet their needs. It's also been uh, shown that students of color simply don't feel welcome in all white spaces, and these libraries are all white spaces at the end of the day. Sharon Eltito, Rose M. Jackson, and Adrienne Lim in a study at Portland State University found differences in the student experience of the library were based on race. They found that students of color were much more lukewarm about whether or not they received good customer service at the reference desk when encountering a staff member at a different race or ethnicity. Students indicated that at times the facial expressions of the staff didn't appear welcoming. It was suggested that if the library had a more diverse staff, others might feel more comfortable talking to them. Moreover, students of color found the library was slightly less welcoming of them, and they also reported feeling less safe. In a study of the academic library experience at Native American students, Rosalind Boosie found that some students have expressed feelings of alienation, fear, and uncertainty when using the library, feelings that extend to their interactions with library staff, as well as their use of the library space. 
A Duke report found that black students do not feel as safe from discrimination, harassment, and emotional and physical harm as white students do when using the library. And some respondents indicated engaging with staff and feeling uncomfortable about the tone of the interaction, describing them with phrases such as talking down to and reluctant to assist. Um, so yeah, this is pretty major. Obviously what we're seeing here when librarians are like, please, why don't you come to the library is simply the fact that a lot of students of color want to talk to other people of color because the history of white supremacy is so complex and deeply ingrained in our culture that they just don't feel comfortable being around a bunch of white people. And even the most well-intentioned white people have subconscious bias that creeps in, have all of these issues that are just, it's not going to create a hospitable space for anybody who's not also white. And white people are not catching the white supremacy at play with book selections and offerings in their libraries either. Like Rosalind Busey also noted that while browsing library collections, Native American students encountered problematic and even racist terminology and organization. Notably, Native students identify these problems, but their non-Native peers did not. So we're accidentally doing dumb white people shit. And because it's only white people in there, nobody's like, whoa, 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 you can't use that word. What the fuck is this? This book is not accurate. And, and calling these things out to actually make an inclusive space in the library. Also a 2020 study of the library experience at Duke found that black students at Duke perceived aspects of the library spaces to be unwelcoming, especially to black students because they centered white history. So all of these things are coming into play to make people feel really, really uncomfortable here. And this ALA executive director, Tracy Hall, said, look, we want to believe that libraries are politically neutral and colorblind, but to sustain this belief, we close our eyes as we steer. Who gets run over in the process? So there's kind of a reckoning going on where people are like looking around going, I don't think we're actually doing all the stuff we're claiming to do. So basically, the more we let libraries just be a fantasy playground for middle-class white people to act like they're serving their community, the more we let conservative ideology win because these spaces aren't actually serving anything but white librarians' egos in the belief that they're doing something to help people, when statistically and in reality, they're just kind of not. So the second thing that we could do to address this on top of like having a more diverse staff in the libraries is to change how libraries are used to better reflect the needs of the community. And some libraries are actually doing a really good job of this already. Like the promise of the library as a community space definitely can be achieved, but local librarians need to be expanding their thinking on what a library space can be. Like what would this look like? And there are some librarians who are doing this and it's really cool doing things like hosting community events, like crafting or potlucks for holiday meals or just feeding the community. Uh, becoming donation drop-offs for local charities. Like just today, I drove to a local community kind of free food thing, like free pantry um, to drop off food I couldn't use. And that was just like outside of a breakfast place I go to a lot, but there's no reason a library couldn't be that. Mm -hmm. Couldn't have like a little free store for the community to not just borrow things, but have things. Uh, some libraries are also investing in self-service technology, kind of like Redbox, but for books, DVDs, or other small items, kind of like ATMs, you know? And they're not just located in libraries, but also bus stations and malls and shopping centers. And those are things that like reach the consumers where they are, kind of like the bookmobile idea. Bring it to them. Don't make them come to it. Other libraries are offering empty rooms as free meeting spaces or conference rooms with online booking services. Some are partnering with local organizations to have like events where people can play games and eat food and drink like beverages and bring their families on the weekends. Um, and also some libraries are doing this where they're just adapting the library to suit the needs of the most vulnerable people in their community. Like 
shifting the focus instead to be like, how do we help the unhoused? How do we help refugees? How do we help queer people? Do we do winter clothing drives for unhoused people? Do we provide tents for unhoused people after police sweeps? Do we provide resources for queer friendly job hunting with local businesses who sign up? And also like just being more vocal about the services you do offer. Like a lot of libraries offer these things that I mentioned here and some offer things that we don't even know about. Like I was shocked to learn that we could rent a power washer, but we learned that on TikTok because young librarians on TikTok are doing a good job of being really vocal about the services they do offer that can help the community. Lots of people just don't know about these things, but increasing marketing to talk about the less common things you can do at a library, even down to like streaming services and digital books as an alternative to paying for them is super useful. Some have also been hosting flea markets for artists. Some have just been doing things like getting a coffee shop in there. Like people love coffee shops. When they were actually polled what their favorite third place was, it was a coffee shop. Oh, that's literally mine. Yeah, which is interesting because a third place is not supposed to make you a consumer, but you are a consumer at a coffee shop, but it's for a relatively low price. You can like buy a drink and sit there for hours. But I feel like, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I do feel like it's like going... It, it it reminds me of like going and hanging out with my friends like after school when we would like go to a park or like you know yeah. go to like I don't know Dairy Queen or something. we would go to Foster Freeze after school yeah <laughs> like <laughs> that's a very California the Foster Freeze the Foster Freeze I'm like we got Dairy Queen <laughs> uh, also a thing that some libraries are doing that is so entertaining to me is hosting punk shows oh yeah I feel like I've that's that also seems like a California thing. Well, we no. used to throw punk shows in the FOE. What's the FOE? Fraternal Order of Eagles. Oh, the Eagles Club! <laughs> wow, my friend's mom's in that. Uh, the Nevada County Library actually had a zine collection launch, and they put on a punk show to kind of kick it off, and that had bands called Noxima and Slutsville. And Margaret Gilmore, <laughs> who was the branch manager at the location that put on the show, said. Hosting live music and punk shows, no less, is a great example of how libraries are redefining our services and spaces to become more of a community hub. They also set up a zine making station, uh, which to me is major because in order to make zines in my teenage years, I literally stole a copy of a teacher's key at my high school to access the teacher-only copy machine and printer. Oh, that's cool. I remember there was always somebody in the punk crew who had stolen like a master Kinko's key. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like that was Back like, in the day of if you were like... We called them the upper crust or the aristocracy. Oh, yeah, that's it. The aristocracy. Yeah. um, You had a fucking Kinko's key to, like, print flyers and shit. Well, now you can do it at the library. Uh, Birmingham Public Library also hosted its first punk show this year with three local bands as part of their winter music series. They also had gospel choirs and other singers perform different shows on different nights. And the DC Punk Archive put on a show in Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library's basement, uh, which is massive because hardcore is such a huge part of DC history. 200 people went and they turned it into a regular thing featuring three local bands every other month. So in three years, 180 bands applied to play. And it was so successful, they even added, like, a go-go event on the rooftop to showcase different types of music. And as teenagers, we were always looking for venues that would host our stupid punk shows. Like, we even went to Christian coffee shops because we were desperate. And they were like, maybe if we let the kids put on a show, they'll convert to Christianity. I, we, I mean, we played shows in parking lots and then just hope the cops didn't come. Yeah, so it's like, this is a good example of, like, oh, there's a need in the community for a public space for this. This is a real, like, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. And I think the third thing we need to do is 
you know, maybe take advantage of the services are, that are there and talk to each other about them a little more. Like, obviously, it's not great if you're trying to tell your friend who's not white to go to this place full of weird white ladies who look at you mean and ask to rent a power tool. Like, they're gonna be like, that doesn't fucking sound fun to me. But for anybody who, you know, feels like they can muster it, it's probably good to talk about some of the services that are available. Like, here in LA, we have access to the LA County Library and the LA City Library. And the things they offer beyond just like checking out a book are so multifaceted. Like you got ebooks and audiobooks available on apps like Libby, Hoopla, Biblioboard. There's streaming services for movie and, and TV on Canopy and Hoopla, which I installed right before Canna came over for us to record I have this. already been on them for years. Yeah, music streaming on Freegal and Hoopla, viewing newspapers and magazines online, uh, looking at research databases. You can take online classes. You can learn a new language. You can get free COVID tests still. You can sign up for this program to get $30 a month off of your internet bill. You can borrow tools, yes, like we did, drills, sanders, power washers, screwdrivers, hammers, socket sets, pliers, wood chisels, staple guns, tape measures, levels, stud finders, clamps, but also things like DVD players, mending kits, sewing machines, steamers, gardening supplies, uh, bicycle repair kits, including bike pumps, extension cords, uh, baking supplies, like you can want like baking tins and things hot glue guns, engravers, jewelry making kits. You can even rent one of those engine code readers for when your check engine light comes on in your car and you don't want to get fleeced at the mechanics. You can rent so much stuff. Another thing that my boyfriend recently told me about that we want to do is you can rent state park passes. So you can go to a state park for free, which That's is major. Cool. You can also um, get free Wi-Fi, even just from the parking lot outside of the library without going in. You can get job hunting assistance, skill training for work. You can even, if you're looking for a job, borrow a laptop for six weeks as well as a wireless hotspot kit for you to be applying for jobs online. Oh, that's cool. And they'll even help you learn how to write cover letters. So, you know, basically the library thing, it's such a good idea, but I feel like it's something we've never really been able to integrate in a meaningful way into society as it actually exists. It's like this lofty ideal and it's the reality of it being completely fucked over by capitalism and white supremacy. Like in theory, it's great. In practice, it's a ghost town. And that's because there's systemic issues plaguing the library system that go way back to the United States history with white supremacy, racism, and capitalism. In order for the library to actually serve people, it needs to be made for the people in those communities and probably by those same people. And for that to happen, we can't pretend like libraries exist outside of the capitalist world we've created. Like they're not in a vacuum. And despite the fact that they have the potential to be these amazing third spaces we deserve and that they want to be and we want them to be, we have to acknowledge the very real effects in both their creation and their staffing that make it just not that. So I love the idea of the library. I see so many librarians trying so hard to get people in the doors to take advantage of the services being offered. And I know it's in earnest. And I feel for these people because they seem like really good people who just want to help and want to convince everybody to come to the library and see all the great things that they have to offer. And it feels so sincere. But all of the people I see doing that work, they're people who look a lot like me for all intents and purposes, white ladies or white femmes, white feminine people, college educated with liberal arts degrees. And for the people who would benefit the most from the library, those aren't exactly trustworthy faces, right? So white women have long acted in cahoots with white men to be the oppressors in our country, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And people of color know that, even if we refuse to acknowledge it ourselves. So it's gonna take more than some diversity training to rectify this issue. It's gonna take restructuring the requirements that it takes to be a librarian, to make libraries actual representations of the communities they're meant to serve. So that's it. That's my episode on libraries. 
uh, I got pretty depressed because I just feel like the well-intentioned white lady thing is such a thing that people of color are over. And then me as like a white lady, I'm like, oh, I get it. I do that. I've been that. And it's not helpful. I mean, I always say the road to hell uh, is paved with good intentions. It's true. I mean, I just want to love the library so much. Um, I just wish, I mean, I, like I said, I love the library I grew up in. I was there, oh my gosh, almost every day as a kid, like in the summertime. But I, ju I think I just wish that we had a society where the library wasn't a thing like it is now. Like you could just get anything you needed whenever you wanted. You didn't have to borrow it from like a rich person or someone being like, here, oh, poor you. Like it, it almost seems that libraries were set up out of pity rather than empowerment. Yeah, I think and that's so, a really good way to explain it. Um, Like to me, we need to set up our society for empowerment, not pity and protection. Right, and I think we need to be really realistic about the history that libraries come from. Kind of that New England white guy trying to spread quote-unquote civilization to the poor uncultured masses. We need to really acknowledge that that's the foundation of our library system. And like in acknowledging it, take steps to actively undo it. And I do like the idea of you know, obviously I don't work in libraries, so I don't know the ins and outs of it, but the idea of eliminating the master's in library science as a way to get more people in the door that better reflect the communities on the whole and the communities that would uniquely benefit from a library. People who can't afford to just go out and buy this shit on their own whenever they want it. Yeah, I also wish that we didn't just limit these public spaces where you can get free materials like books you know like to expand your life like what if like you could go like to me it's like we only limit it to books and we stop there we don't right. be like oh what if you just need groceries what if you right. just need what if you just want to go out and hang out with people right like, have a social what if, space yeah what if you just want to have a social space what if you want to do a project with your friends like to me the reason again why the library can't succeed is because our society puts a stopgap on how much we're allowed to help people in an empowering way. Right. Really, to, to in our society, helping people is considered pity instead of empowerment. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I have faith that the library can turn it around. I yeah, think the library can be the third space we want. Yeah. I think that it's a really interesting way um, to get just more normal people on board of having a community. Right. And I think the places we've seen the most success are like even as early as 1930s when the Puerto Rican librarian was yeah. like, I'm going to make this a space for Puerto I, Ricans like me. That's why it's like a little bit complicated because I think libraries have so much potential. Yes. But they cannot succeed the way our society is set up now. Right. Totally. Well, that's the big library episode. Um... You know, I don't, I don't really know what the takeaway for me is personally, but I will say in doing this episode, I learned a lot about the services the library offers and I will be using more of them. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Once you showed me the, the language thing, uh, I just think in the, the, the words of Avril Lavigne, why you got to go make things so complicated. Right. It's true. Simplify. <laughs> That's it. That's the episode. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us there at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. 
for $3 a month, you can access bonus content there. But if three bucks a month is too much for you to spend right now, we totally get it and we're just happy you're here. As always, you can find the sources for this week's episode just by scrolling down a bit in the description.